Welcome to Marvel Studios News. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I will be joined by my co-host, Paul Herman, for episode 76 of our show. It is our spoiler review for Avengers Infinity War, the operative word there being spoiler. A non-spoiler review is already available on this podcast. It was episode 75 of our show, which I recorded last week. So if you have not seen the movie, that's the review to listen to because it's completely 100% safe and spoiler free. Uh, I wouldn't want you to listen to this show if you have not seen Infinity War because there are a lot of great surprises in the film and you should not go into it spoiled. But anyway, that is, of course, your choice to make. So if you have already seen the film, then of course, enjoy this spoiler review. If you have not, my recommendation is that you pause it here and then come back after you've seen the film. But at least now I've given you fair warning so you can make whatever choice you would prefer. But before we get to the actual show, I have some folks to thank. So thank you very much to Edwin, uh, Thomas J. Olson, apparently a different Thomas J. Olson than we had last week. And also, Brandon, I'm not sure if this is Baum or Baham, uh, so I apologize if I butchered the pronunciation on the name, but they are our latest patrons over at patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News. And via our Patreon, they now have access to exclusive content not available anywhere else. We do our main show here, but then on the Patreon, we do additional things like uh, Patreon credit scenes. It's where we take episodes like this one and we do extra content on top that wasn't included in the main episode. So for this week's Patreon credit scene, we're talking about the Eternals and Nova as projects that Marvel Studios is developing for potentially after Avengers 4. Uh, we also do things like uh, exclusive episodes each and every month. So for April, we talked about the road to Infinity War, just in terms of just going through that journey to this film, the buildup to it, all the marketing, all the different announcements, everything we learned about that film as, uh, before we eventually, of course, went and, and saw it to uh, provide this spoiler review for you. And I also actually do... Q&A episodes every single week. So, in fact, there's already a Q&A episode up from uh, the first round of spoiler questions that I got from Infinity War. So that's available, and I do that every single week for our patrons. If they want to go in and uh, ask me questions, then I can go ahead and, and answer them to the best of my ability. Uh, but we have all kinds of content depending on the tier, the tier you choose. In our first tier, which is the Patreon credit scenes, uh, that's available for only a dollar a month. So I encourage you to check that out over at patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News. The last thing I would let you know about that, uh, that I want you to know about it, is if you do subscribe to the Patreon, uh, you actually will get your own unique private RSS feed because we post all of our content, the main show and the Patreon exclusive content. We put it all on that feed so that that way, depending on whatever tier you choose, all the content that you're entitled to, like the main podcast and then all the other exclusives, all can come into one feed. You can use that RSS that RSS link to subscribe via Apple Podcasts and a lot of other podcatchers so you don't have to go two places for our content. You can actually get them in uh, one spot. So that's super convenient and hopefully you guys get it hopefully all of you get a chance to check that out. Uh, and then I would also encourage you to just keep up with us uh, anywhere you can find us. We're available every single day at marvelstudiosnews.com. That's where I'm writing and posting articles about the MCU each and every day. You can also find us on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash marvelstudiosnews. Uh, we're also marvelstudiosnews on Instagram. Or if you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at marvelnewscast. So... That's it for all the announcements, all the things I would want to let you know. Although one quick programming update, uh, you'll hear me mention it in the show, but I just want to reiterate now up front, 
This is our spoiler show for Infinity War. This is not our speculation show in terms of what it all means for Avengers 4. There's so many theories to to have and so so many things to speculate about coming out of this film that we're going to dedicate a whole show to that for our next episode. This episode will focus mainly just on the spoiler review of Avengers Infinity War. And once again, I've said spoiler, so I've given more than enough warnings at this point. So if you get spoiled and you didn't want to be, by this episode of the podcast, it is your fault, and I'll claim no responsibility on that. But anyway, with all the proper warnings having been delivered, let's get on with our show. Let's talk about Avengers Infinity War. Well, damn, Paul. This is it. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. We were on a uh, a very long, although not that long, it's only been a few months, but several episodes <laughs> of a, a Road to Infinity War, and we have arrived. This is it, the spoiler review of Avengers Infinity War. Uh, I It feels right to be here, but at the same time, I can't believe we're here now, <laughs> like that we're on yeah. this side of it. Well, think about it this way, Sean. Like, remember when I first joined Modern Myth Media, it was for the Marvel stuff, and we we had just we're just about to get Thor and Cap. Mm-hmm. So we're leading towards the Avengers, mm-hmm. and now we're podcasting still together, and we're, we've got Infinity War, which is like a culmination of 17, 18 films, whatever the hell it is, up to this point. And that is a feat that it will mean ever – who knows what will happen with, with these you know cinematic universes, but this is unprecedented what, what we're doing and what Marvel has done. So – this is a big moment for us as podcasters, you know, and our, it's like it's like our our, our friendship and our and our and our uh, podcast we've done together are coming full circle. It's like we're we're coming back around to like, you know, like this thing we never we never thought we'd ever maybe even see. You yeah, know, I mean, we we got together for film four of the MCU was when we started, and now we're on film nineteen of the Marvel Ugh. Cinematic Universe. If only we had started podcasting in 2008, we would have we could have had the whole you thing. You were podcasting. I, I wasn't yet. But, I, you... but, that, uh, but even when Iron Man came out, it was a little bit later in 2008 when I started podcasting. Oh, so oh, I okay. missed Iron Man in my podcasting career. But anyway. All right. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to, before we get into the spoiler review, because there's a lot to unpack in this movie, so I kind of need to work my way up to it. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, uh, so in order to do that, we want to, we want to preserve the tradition that we established along the road to infinity war. Although we're not, we're going to cut it a little bit shorter on this. Cause we know you want to hear the spoiler review. We talked about the buildup to infinity war on our Patreon exclusive episode for April available at patreon.com slash Marvel studios news. Uh, so, but another big part of talking about, uh, these movies on the road to infinity war has been sharing our first viewing experience, which should not be too hard to remember this time (laughs) because, uh, because it obviously was not that long ago. So Paul, before we get into the movie itself, Mm. set the stage, uh, of what it was like with your first viewing, where'd you go? Who were you with? Well, and what was went, your mood going into it? Because oh, I, you know, I, I was in a weird mood, so I really want to know what you were, what your mood was like before you saw enough. the film. Well, I was very, very excited. 
I was giddy all day. My boss was getting super annoyed, and he kept saying, <laughs> "Don't forget to do this, Paul. Don't forget." You know, me and my boss are homies, so it's like you know. But he was like, "Okay, I know you're really excited, but don't forget to do this." Don't. Forget. I'm like, "Oh yeah, I got. Don't worry, I got that." But I just was distracted literally all day. I could not stop thinking about Infinity War. Now, you have to realize, people, that you know these films have come out like two, three times a year. I haven't got this excited about a Marvel film probably. It, since Civil War, even Spider-Man, I wasn't like, you know, jazz for. I was excited for, but Civil War was like one that I really, really couldn't wait to see. And Infinity and before that, you know, I think as the movies, the, the phase one films, they all were really exciting. And they all kind of, that was a lost special, their specialness, excuse me. But they just kind of got this not as much as much of as an event as a, you know, Infinity War has turned out to be. So... My excitement level, as the as it got closer and closer to seven o'clock, got ridiculous. And uh, I had bought tickets, forgetting that it was the NFL draft that night. And a bummed because my brother and I, my older brother, uh, we usually watch the draft day one, day two, day three. We watch all of the days together and hang out. Well, my brother is just you know whatever. He's not as big of a Marvel fan as me, even though he got me into comic books. Uh, I end up going with uh, my good friend Jim, who's a big comic book fan, more more of a DC guy, but he loves Marvel too. And uh, anyway, we went to Red Robin before and just stuffed our faces full of French fries, mozzarella sticks, and cheeseburgers. <laughs> and uh, I drank a lot of Diet Coke, which ended up being a very big mistake. Really bad it, idea, man. Yeah, that yeah, was that was bad. Um, <laughs> if you if you if you could insert the gif of that guy Will Arnett from Arrested Development and said so made a huge mistake. <laughs> like, that's literally he, like throughout all almost all of Infinity War. Oh, mostly. Um, but anyway, we you know we're we're get, I was just getting like giddy, you know, and mm. and the last the only films I've been able to do that recently are the Star Wars films, and, they, and because they come out once a year and. But Infinity War has been a buildup, and it's I knew I knew this is the different kind of superhero comic book movie movie event. It's it's not just a movie; it's an event now. Like this is a culmination of all these different films. So, um, yeah, walked in, uh, you know, had reserved seating. Thank God, uh, walked in, and I felt bad because I I must have hit this poor girl's knee multiple times walking back and forth going to the bathroom <laughs> and i felt very bad and I, I i know she probably was super annoyed with me and i'm sorry i just can't help myself i was too giddy that day of uh, just walking by all the time but anyway yeah it was uh <clears throat> it was i was excited i came in just just super jazzed yeah i was in uh, is in a little bit of a funky mood at first um because like the build-up for me kind of started a little bit before I, I saw the film it was kind of the day before the film was when I really started feeling it, like going into it, it was definitely like the most, I think infinity war takes the new, the it's the new prize. It's the new champ in terms of the most excited I've ever been for a Marvel movie. Um, maybe most excited I've ever been for any movie. I don't know. Like it's, it's up there uh, wow. as, as an all timer for me. Like I was just so excited about this one. It's probably this one in dark Knight. I, I think are probably that's, they're just neck and neck. And, I was so amped up for it, but then uh, the press conference happened last weekend, and or and I went to the press conference on Sunday, and you know it, it was fun and everything like that. But I don't know why, like all of a sudden, like when the press conference was over, I was just kind of like just dawned on me, like oh, so the next thing I do is see the movie, and I was like, 
oh shit, I don't think I'm ready. <laughs> like it was just that thing of I've been looking forward to this movie so much and for so long. I'm like, I don't even know if I'm ready to watch this movie now uh, <laughs> because I've just gotten myself so incredibly amped up. There's like no way this movie can live up to the expectations that I have for it. And I'm usually like the king of telling everybody, hey, keep your expectations in check. Just like be cool. Yeah. Uh, I could not take my own advice for Infinity War. And so I kind of freaked out a little bit on Sunday. But then on Monday, because uh, I was going to see it, go see it at the premiere, when I woke up on Monday, like it was back to normal and I was just really amped up and, and excited to be going and uh, and seeing the movie. And so... We went to, uh, I went with uh, my friend Mark Hughes and who I co-host the Superhero News Show with. And and so we always meet up. Like that's kind of our thing before we go to, when we when we are fortunate enough to go to premieres in Hollywood, then we usually meet up at Mel's Diner uh, on Hollywood and Highland. So we did that. And then we walked over because we were guests of, of Dolby because the premiere was at three theaters. One of those theaters, of course, was the Dolby Theater. And so we went to a little reception with them real quick to kind of meet up. And then we all went over to Will Call and the premiere was just like, it was massive, massive. Like I've never seen a line that like our line just to pick up our tickets at will call was just huge. It probably took us like 40 minutes to get through that line. Like it was insane. Um, and then all of, like, then all of a sudden we had our tickets and then we were just walking through this like super long, uh, well, not a red carpet. It was a purple carpet. Cause you know, Thanos, uh, but they had all the different costumes on display, like inside this tent or whatever. So like nobody from the outside could see it. So I was feeling like super like status right there <laughs> to be there. Um, <laughs> but it was just amazing. Like walking through, here's all the costumes. And they got Tony's car from Iron Man 2, Red Skull's car from uh, Captain America First Avenger, that super long car with the Hydra oh, horn ornament was in there. Awesome. Just like, just amazing. Like you could just feel the energy it was palpable everybody was excited and then we got inside the got inside the dolby theater and you know i went and i took my i was i was shocked that i actually had a pretty good seat with a nice view of the screen sometimes you go to those premieres and i'm like you know you're way off to the side because like way more important people than me get better seats but i really lucked out and had a good seat and and so then i was just kind of waiting for the movie to start and i kept like like you, like I kept trying to go like pee because I knew the movie was going to be long and it kept like not starting. So I was like, oh, I got to like restart the clock over, you know, like over and over again. And then finally, like, uh, you know, they brought the cat, you know, being at the it was really advantageous to be at the Dolby Theater because they brought the cast out. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. gave this awesome and, and hilarious speech that was super long-winded, but nobody cared because it was so entertaining. And then the Russos talked for a little bit. So then by the time it got to Kevin Feige, he was just like, ah, oh, let's just start the movie. And, uh, you know, but right, there was kind of a few a few moments there between the time Feige said, let's start the movie and b- before they could actually start it, because they kind of had to take down some of the staging they had done to put all the all the cast on there. And so, like, in those moments, that's when I went into, it, it's something I've kind of described before, that I, a, a, a procedure, I guess, I don't know, that I've started doing ever since Dark Knight Rises in 2012, where I just kind of go into, like, this meditative state of just taking all the anticipation, all of the theories and speculation and all that stuff, and just letting it all go uh, as quickly, you know, just letting it all go very quickly and quietly so that I can just be ready to watch the movie as it unfolds. Uh, before my very eyes so yeah I, I can't lie I mean it was it was amazing to be there and also it's 
it, it felt really special to be there as a Marvel fan and then as somebody who covers this stuff to be able to go and be there for the very first time that this movie was shown in public. Uh, that was, it, it was incredible. I feel honored and extremely privileged to have been there. Um, and I'll never, I'm never going to forget that for as long as I live. I mean, I've been to, I've been fortunate enough to be to some pretty, to be at some pretty cool premieres uh, over the past uh, several years, but this one, uh, this one takes the cake. And the only thing that could maybe match it is if I am lucky enough to also go to the Avengers four premiere <laughs> next year. <laughs> um, but then, like, but it wasn't just, uh, you know, it wasn't just that that first uh, uh, screening. Like, I saw it. I was lucky enough to also see it the next morning at like a regular press screening. So that was fun. But then being there for opening night on Thursday. Because even though, like, yes, it's really fun to go to premieres, and it's really fun to go see movies early at, at press screenings, but my favorite viewings of these movies, it's always that Thursday night, opening night. Like, because even though, even when I've already seen the movie, usually my favorite experience watching the movies is that Thursday night, because I love being there with my fellow Marvel fans. That's when I really feel like I'm there amongst my people watching the movie, <laughs> and it, that's when I'm, I'm, I'm here with my community, with my family, like... I'm there with my, you know, my, my family, be, you know, my actual like biological family because I was there with uh, my mom and dad, and I, my wife was there, and then of course, uh, my wife and I are not biologically related. It's not weird like that, but you know, <laughs> I was there with my, you know, my mom and dad, but then I had my, my wife there, and then my, uh, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my niece. You know, we had a bunch of people there. Uh, my brother-in-law's boyfriend, like we had, there was, I think, yeah, so there were eight of us there, plus the, re- you know, the extended Marvel family of the fellow Marvel fans and just being there ready to uh, to watch this movie and just be amped up about it. Because it still, it still feels like a, a brand new experience to me when I go and watch it with the fellow Marvel fans, because that's when I'm really going to find out, okay, so does the family really like this movie or is it just going to be me? <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> it's really important. And uh, so, so yeah, it was, it was great. It was all a great buildup to uh, watching this movie. And now I've, and because I saw it, you know, twice before opening night and then again on opening night and I saw it again today, before, uh, you and I both saw it not long before we started recording this show. So I've been through uh, four rounds of, uh, of Avengers Infinity War and I just don't plan to stop anytime soon because... <laughs> Now we can go ahead and get into the review. Yes. I love this movie. I love this movie so much. I wish it had lips. I would make out with it. Like, it is so amazing. It is everything I could have ever dreamed this movie would be except better. And I just, I I have just complete unabashed love for Avengers Infinity War. Uh, to the point where I'm not even the guy who said it best. It's our friend Tim Garachi who said it best. Like it's a, and I'm not quoting. I'm just paraphrasing. But he kind of talked about it, it's like it's the big event crossover comic come to life, and it is. Yes. It yes. totally is. But not just like uh, not like any crossover. It's like the best crossover comic you ever read coming to life. Yes. <laughs> like, it's mm-hmm. it's so damn good. I've it is the most emotionally intense comic book movie i've ever seen marvel or otherwise <clears throat> it is uh you know it is action packed the spectacle is just completely unprecedented in the levels that this movie gets to just in the overall this the the scale of this movie the size of this movie it, it's just unbelievable and even though it has all of these things going on and goes into territory that marvel's never gone into before and yet it is, as Thanos loves to say, perfectly balanced in every way because all the other things that you love about Marvel, the humor, the character work, all of those things, they're all still there. Um, 
And so I, I, I love it. The Russos, uh, you know, Joe and Anthony Russo, the directors, the screenwriters, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely with the screenplay. Uh, this was an amazing effort that they put forth in this. I can't believe just how well they nailed it. This film <clears throat> was a roller coaster ride from start to finish. And it's really hard to get those experiences in, in movies. I think movies like Jurassic Park, like Star Wars, um, the, even the prequels, you know, I think episode three was one of those films where I just could not stop having a good time and just loved every second of it. I th Infinity War is that and so much more. There is, it's hard to put into words with something, you know, that you love for so long and try to like say how it, it, it's when you have, this is how I'm going to explain it like. This is a game changer on on so many different levels mm -hmm. because <clears throat> Kevin Feige has built something over 10 years. And this movie is not just 10 years in the making like a Star Wars film where you're, you know, they stopped making them and you waited 10 years to make another one. Like that's anticipation, sure, but this is totally different. Right. This is building yep. towards something. And that hasn't been done in film on this level. And what's amazing about it is that we get it's it literally is influenced by comic books. And I want to really, really, really stress that. And you made a great point, too, uh, you know, with you and Tim, uh, Sean, is that this is a, the crossover event movie style, but it's inspired completely by the comic books, the comic books, the way they inter, inter, integrated all their all their characters in one universe and they would build up stories. They gave the pathway for Kevin Feige to see and master a way of going, hey, this is how we're going to do it in film. Comics do it this way. We're going to do it this way, which is heavily influenced by the comic books. Mm -hmm. So when I see that over 10 years and then you have Infinity War, it literally felt like I was opening a page to the first issue of, of like, you know, again – a major event crossover. And like, I remember if, if you all remember or listen, or as you should to the Thor Ragnarok, uh, review, I had said the beginning of this movie felt like I was literally opening a page to a Thor comic book. And that's exactly what would happen. Like you, if I were to just go to like back when I was a kid, to pick up a, a Thor comic on Seven Eleven, open a page. That's the first part of Ragnarok is exactly what I would have felt like. Whereas infinity, infinity war is that on steroids. Infinity War is literally me uh, coming back to comic books in my you know mid twenties uh, or or early twenties, excuse me, early twenties, picking up the latest event comic book like event New Avengers or something like that, but even bigger, and just opening the page, and being like, holy crap, and just being in just entranced by what I was seeing. And Infinity War just is again, it's a roller coaster ride, and it's such a like I didn't have time to breathe. And I, and one of the most amazing things about it is that it just doesn't, it doesn't try to like over, you know, sh shove things in your head. Like, Oh, remember this? Remember this? No, no, no. It's like, we know, you know this. So we're just going to go ahead and do this. There's totally different. Every studio before it, if they were doing something like that, they would have to over explain everything or that felt that need to Marvel doesn't have to worry about that. And they brought in so many different things. And granted, this movie is a lot to take in. Marvel had so much guts 
so, so, the guts were so big. They didn't care. It came in unabashedly and just came in with their story they wanted to tell. And use the characters they wanted to, you know, explain it with, and also bring in new characters that they didn't have to overexplain too. The audience just accepted it, mm-hmm. and to me, it's just I just the first time was just mesmerizing. I, that is probably the best word I can say, is that it was mesmerizing watching this movie that was again eighteen whatever films that were made before it, it all coming together in the most concise well like structured film that it, i that i have seen for an action sci-fi movie and that's what it felt like you know everything needs time to see for me of how much where it falls in line with everything but i will say this right now at this moment this is the best comic book superhero movie ever made i'm just gonna say it i've, I've seen it twice i just got done with the second the second viewing i it, what was accomplished in this is is just so nothing can co- touch it. The performances, I mean, it's I mean there there are some things I'll, I'll love to talk about when we're in, a, in a little bit, but for the most part, these performances were unreal, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to dive into it. But I right now at this moment, and I hate saying that because I don't I don't like to you know me Sean I don't yeah. like to just be like oh yeah this is the best this is the best this is the, this is the new best that's right. not me. That's not I, I have to be very critical of things. I'll be honest, it's hard to be critical on this movie because Marvel made a film nothing that's been nothing like it before. In the comic books, there's stuff like that all over the place. But they went into film, made something that the mainstream audience, not comic book fans, we already we already were bought our tickets, you know? Mm-hmm. They made something the mainstream audience could dive into and understand while at the same time telling a story that's pretty complicated so this to me is just it's un you can't nothing can touch it it's the best yeah i mean the only reason i'm not just outright saying it's the best marvel movie or best comic book movie ever it's because i made a rule for myself not to immediately rank any comic book movies especially marvel movies just because there are so many that i think are so amazing and great but I can tell you right now, no film has you know tempted me more to break that rule since I started it than Avengers: yeah. Infinity War because I'm, I, I, I got to be honest, like this to me is, this is this is an all timer that also goes beyond superhero movies. This is like, this might end up, I may end up feeling like this is the greatest like action blockbuster movie I've ever seen. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know, like, yeah. like I'm sorry guys, but you know, and to you as well, Paul, like. You know, the MCU kind of is my Star Wars, even though I love Star Wars. The MCU to me is what Star Wars is to a lot of other people. And, you know, Infinity War, this is like my Empire Strikes Back. But in but for me, better. So, like, it's really I mean, and I know, you know, it sounds stupid to almost say that because Infinity War or I'm sorry, Empire Strikes Back is obviously some untouchable classic. But I think Infinity War goes down in that same is going to go down in that same respect. I mean, I don't know. It's we got to let a lot of time go by. But. My instant reaction is very, and after four viewings, like it's extremely positive on this film, and so let's let's start getting into the reasons why. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the the only way I can really keep track of this movie and and all the things I loved about it is to try and at least go a little bit in order. So, yeah, good call. Yeah. I mean, so just e- even the way that it opens, you know, like the mm-hmm. Marvel logo is playing, but no, no, none of the fanfare music. Like it's just this very. Dark beginning, the logo turns into the Marvel Studios' first 10 years logo, which is dope. <laughs> and then, 
you get, um, you know, but then you, you hear the distress calls from the Asgardian ship. And, uh, you know, so then I'm like, okay, so we're, we're skipping Xandar, you know, which, you know, was fine, which I thought there was a chance that would happen. And, and it happened. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But, you know, opening on that scene on the Asgardian ship, and it's really more of the aftermath of the attack. You know, we see shots being fired upon the ship, but then we immediately cut to, uh, you know, where most of the damage has been done. Now, I want to, before I, I forget about it, I want to clarify something, because every people keep, I, I hear people keep saying like, oh, they destroyed all the Asgardians. No, they destroyed half. Even Thor says they slaughtered half of the people. And so as far as where they are, if you go back and look at that shot, from when uh, the wide shot, when the Sanctuary 2 Thanos' ship is firing on the refugee ship, it's already broken in half, and you see another half of it kind of, you see other, you see another big chunk of it. There's other, there's multiple chunks, but there's one like big, really big chunk kind of floating away to the right of the frame. And so my guess is that's where the, the Asgardians who don't die, I'm guessing that they're on that half of the ship. Um, and as far as Valkyrie and Korg, I think they're just not present when the attack happened and they had already left the ship in between the end of Thor Ragnarok and the mid credit scene. That's just my theory mm. on that, and I just want to get mm. that out of the way. Uh, but that actually brings up an important point. So uh, it doesn't really, not so much for the Valkyrie and Korg thing, but I just want to you know, set the right expectation for this show. This show is our spoiler review show for Infinity War. This is not our... Infinity mm. War, what happens next speculation show. <laughs> like that will be yes. a completely separate show because we will never finish this episode if we <laughs> <laughs> review Infinity War and then also give you our theories of, of what happens next for Avengers 4. But anyway, getting back to it, um, this scene was incredible for a lot of reasons for me. Uh, you know, just showing Thanos, and, and, and at least it, it, we get one really good look at him. Uh, actually, we get another one with the Gamora flashback. But mm. so even though Thanos spends a lot of most of his time in this movie without the armor, um, I think it it's uh, he looks great in the armor when we get to see it. But it also kind of proves to me why it was the right call to take him out of the armor because the armor is very clunky and it also hides, uh, you know, a good chunk of his face you know, in his expressions. So like you, you know, when you get more, you get more of Josh Brolin's performance when he's, you know, without the helmet and without all the armor, like he just gets to move and be more expressive. So I actually ultimately think it was the right call based on seeing how he moves in the armor uh, in the film. But I got some all time things for me. Like you all know, I've said it a thousand times, like how, how I grew up, but you know, Mar uh, Hulk was like my, mm. my access point to Marvel. Like that was the character that immediately grabbed my attention. and got me to start, reading Marvel comics and buying Marvel action figures and watching Marvel animation. Like, it, you know, it never would have happened without the Hulk in the same way that, that Batman was my access point to DC. That's what Hulk was for me with Marvel. And so, and one of my favorite things is always to watch Hulk as a big, strong monster fight another big, strong monster. So the fact that I got a one-on-one -on -one boxing match between like Thanos and Hulk, granted it was pretty one-sided i mean hulk got some licks in early and then thanos just decimated him so i'm hoping there's a rematch where hulk does a little bit better but i just i mean i love the look the look of that fight it was quick but it was effective and seeing thanos and hulk going toe to toe and then thanos just beating the crap out of him and how that actually plays into it to where you know hulk got his ass kicked so bad that now he's scared to come out uh, like with bruce banner like that was amazing and then watching uh, but then just the big emotion of the scene you know, I, I had figured going into this that Heimdall and Loki were going to get it. I was right. Uh, yeah. as, you know, especially as, as and, and many other people guessed that, especially when it comes to Loki. But it was it was savage 
when Thanos when Thanos took Loki, I was not expecting that. Like it was brutal. I mean, he's mm-hmm. basically hanging him by holding <sighs> him by his neck with the gauntlet. And then at the last moment, he breaks his, you know, he, you hear the crack of the neck, you know, just in case you were worried, that, you know, you thought that maybe Loki could still be alive and he just ran out of air and passed out. No, Thanos breaks his neck. You can actually hear it in the shot. Um, and it was just devastating and having and watching Thor react to all of it, watching him react to seeing Heimdall killed and Loki killed. But the performance by Hiddleston, it was so, this is how damn good Tom Hiddleston has been this whole time. But he shows it, like, he just steps up to the plate again. He's not in this movie for very long, but, man, he delivers an amazing... He just delivers this terrific, emotional, impactful performance that shows, you know, that, that in many ways brings full circle, like, the arc that this character has been on. Or not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, completes the arc. But he's... The, the two things that stand up is, like, the tears that are in his eyes when Thor's about, when he, when Thor's about to die. Because he, first he tells Thanos, kill away, and tries to act like he doesn't care. Uh, when Thanos has the power stone to Thor's head. But then you see him and like he starts crying and he's like, stop. But then just that moment where he's, uh, you know, when he's going to try and kill Thanos and he says, you know, I'm Loki, Prince of Asgard. And then he stops and he says, Odin's son. And he looks at mm. Thor. And that's just basically this thing of Loki. And, and even though he, he knows he's probably going to die, he knows he doesn't really have an expectation that this is going to work. He's he's making this connection with Thor of, of saying like we are brothers you know we have the same mm-hmm. father all this stuff of I'm from Jotunheim and I'm not Asgardian and we're not really family all that's gone like the you know I'm gonna make sure in the, in what could be my last moment that you know that that I believe that you and I really are brothers and that's the way I feel and I love you and so you know having that you know and then that futile attempt at Thanos and then just the the brutality of Thanos killing Loki. Man, it just it just set the tone for it, and also the fact that that Thanos says no resurrections this time. He's not coming yeah. back from the dead, folks. Like this is it, and that's Marvel's way of telling you this is it. Like when you see people die <laughs> in this movie, like it's you know it's going to stick. Maybe not all of them, but like <laughs> this one is definitely going to stick. Yeah, the opening scene was such a it was it just a, a beautiful play to start off, in my opinion. With the chatter, uh, just you know, just, you know, just with the, with, with the chatter with the blank screen, mm-hmm. and then you have you know the overcom with the the com link or whatever, and then you have the ebony ebony maw walking around the dead ass guardians and Heimdall talking, and immediately I was entranced. If, if you know I, me in your in your daily life, you're gonna hear me say, "Hear me and rejoice a lot." <laughs> <laughs> hear me and rejoice. Wow. Yeah, and I immediately loved the Ebony Ma man. Yeah, that was Tom Von like, Lawler. Yeah, that was his. It, it. I was hooked. The voice was perfect. Nailed it. And I just, I was. In, I mean, it was like, man, they're not wasting any time. And I thought that was a really great decision. They didn't have to like go and show like pick up literally right after. Uh, Thor Ragnarok left off. No, we're going to show you the fact that Thanos already is in here and whooped a everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, so I loved, I love that. And I think is you, and people who know me will, will know that I'm a big costume guy. I love costume accurate things. And I'm with you, Sean, that I, for one, wanted to see him in his armor and I got enough of him in his armor in this movie to be cool. Totally cool with what they did. I actually really like the fact that like he took it off like once he got another stone. Mm-hmm. It just made sense. I it, it's 
it's when they do it for they they do costume stuff for the, this to be unnecessary to do like oh we got it's ridiculous we gotta get rid of it no it felt like there's a, a legitimate story purpose yeah. of why like, and so I don't need this anymore I've got two yeah. infinity stones I'm I'm the most powerful being in the universe yeah and so. And again, when the Hulk comes in and gets a couple of licks in, I'm like, oh, wow, like they're going straight into this. I mean, I, it was like I said, I talk about a roller coaster. It was literally why as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, man, it's starting. Oh, crap. And then he beats the crap out of mm-hmm. Hulk. And I remember thinking, whoa. And again, see, in the comic books and again, this is not the comic books. And I, and I, and I think that's a good thing. Right? That's going to be said a lot in this movie or about this movie, to be honest. One of the things that is not exactly comic accurate is the fact that Hulk will get beat like that. That's not how mm. it works in the comic books. Because the matter the matter Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets. Now, there's a problem with that in the comic books because Hulk's pretty much the, the, he's got unlimited power essentially. He's almost like Superman. He's like he's just almost a little too powerful. Mm-hmm. There's there's different ways to get him now, but basically he's all too powerful. Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's Probably the strongest, but he, he can be defeated. So I love the fact they made Thanos, you know, strength for strength equal to the Hulk. But obviously, Thanos is a warrior, super smart, mm-hmm. and just beat the crap out of him knowing where to hit him and knock him out. And Hulk's never fought someone with such, you know, with the smarts and the strength of his size. In, in an equal strength, I should say. Yeah. So I, I seeing that, and again, telling the, you know, not... You know, showing the audience, not telling them verbally, like, the Hulk can't go up again. No, no. They showed you exactly how strong Thanos is naturally without the gauntlet. Showing you that he can go toe-to-toe with the Hulk one-on-one. And I was like, whoa. That that was surprising to me. I didn't... I thought maybe he would have gotten to his mind. That was my kind of guess. Like, which he did technically, I guess, because he got in his head and because he was so shocked. But I, I, I didn't, I didn't never thought that he'd be, you know, fist for fist with the Hulk. I thought it would be some kind of mental thing that he would have done with one of the gems, but no. Uh, I mean, he hits him with that throat punch after he pulls the Hulk's arms off him. And like the look on Hulk's face says it all. Like Hulk can't believe that that hurt. Yeah. And he's, he picks him off balance and he's done. And, I that to me was a, one of the one of the coolest things because again you're telling you're telling the audience the general mainstream audience Thanos ain't nothing that you know what with and then you have comic fans like me I'm like oh Thanos is on a different level he can take on the Hulk one on one without the gauntlet like that's and again I I've never Thanos is strong in the comics I bet he probably could go toe to toe with the Hulk in the comic books but it just felt different. It felt like the Hulk, you know, again, like he it was might power. fight Hulk to like a stalemate in the comics. He wouldn't outright beat him like he did. That's in this a great one. point. Yes. And I think that to me was telling the comic book people, the purists like me going, this is not going to go the way you think. And I was fine with that because mm-hmm. it made, it just kind of made sense. So the opening was just beautiful. Like, you know, I, I won't expand much more. I agree with everything you said about Loki. But I will say that it was such a, I mean, it's such a brutal, gruesome opening. Mm-hmm. Again, all, everything was off screen except for the Hulk fight. It, it's just like, what? It's crazy. And so I love the fact you, you're dropped in. Again, Marvel has the, all the guts in the world. They don't care. Drop you in. It's already, you know, Thor's already defeated. Mm-hmm. And which again is like, oh my gosh, like he's already, you know, this is crazy. So I don't know. I was, I love the opening. It was a great opening. 
a great opening. And also, mm-hmm. I have to say this, and it's going to be a broken record throughout the sh- uh, throughout the show, is the CGI immediately just oh, popped. It just, it, I mean, it looked so real. And, and, and part of that is because it's in a dark area, you know, and obviously the darker the, the scene is, at least for me, I, it's more believable. The CGI doesn't look as CGI, if that makes sense. Like, I, I love yeah, CGI. There's, there's broad daylight shots of Thanos where he still looks real. No, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the but the initial, like the initial Thanos in the opening scene here, I and the Ebony Maw and all the other, um, the you know whatever Black Order, I, I was blown away, man. Like I, I literally, I literally was just like, I can't believe how good this looks. It looks incredible. It looks real. It looks straight up real. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you know the. The, the children of Thanos don't always look great. There's a couple shots of, of each of them. Well, I, Ebony Maw pretty much looks great um, pretty much the whole time. And Call Obsidian actually looks pretty good most of the time. There's a couple of shots of Corvus Glaive and Proxima Midnight that I don't love, but I'm like, eh, Thanos ate up the VFX budget, so there were going to be a couple shots <laughs> of some of the <laughs> CG characters that didn't quite work, and I'm fine with that because Thanos yep. looks amazing throughout yes. this movie there again there are a couple of shots that are a little iffy but even then they're still pretty good shots and, and everything else is is just about picture perfect for me well, as, the, as it goes to thanos were the shots that you were you're you're talking about are they towards the end of the film on wakanda uh the there's that shot when the the worst shot of corvus glaive is when uh black widow stabs him yes agreed staff um, Which is a picture that I saw initially. Remember? Yeah, yeah I Ricky, remember it. from Ricky you know Church. That, yeah, Ricky, you're cool, boy. We're, we're cool. But that picture, I was like, I don't trust that picture. And that and that was that was the worst one. It is. That was yeah. the worst one. Yeah, that's the worst shot of Corvus Glaive. Everything else looks better than that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, like it was just a, an incredible opening sequence. And and I want to point, you know, let me go back to like you know a few things that got skipped over and why I think that works. You know, because I. I, you know, I had said, like, I thought that, you know, uh, you know, Feige had been saying for so long that in the first five minutes, you're going to understand why Thanos is the biggest, baddest villain in the MCU. This, this opening scene proved that. Like, it instantly made him the biggest, yep. baddest villain because yep. he killed, he literally kills and brutally kills Marvel's best villain up until that point with Loki. Oh, but he also just so happened to beat the shit out of the Hulk um, and rather <laughs> easily. So, you know, like, yeah, you proved Thanos' power level and that also he was you know, more powerful and more ruthless than the favorite MCU villain up until that point with Loki. So, uh, you know, that was a a great way of establishing the, this, this whole new threat level that was being brought into the MCU by, by Thanos. And, and I think it was the smart call because, you know, I, I had said, I wasn't sure would they go with the attack on Asgard, the Asgardian ship first, or would they do Xandar since the trailers showed him having the Power Stone first? And they don't show they don't show the attack on Xandar. And I think that's okay because when you think of all the other scenes where Thanos got Infinity Stones, it's really very impactful emotional moments. And even though a lot of us would have been emotionally impacted by Nova Prime and Denarian Day and, and everybody else, most other audience members would not have been. So they wanted to really cut to the meat of it. And by the way, if they end up making a Nova movie, you could still flash back to the attack on Xandar. But, um, you know, so I was okay with the, with skipping Xandar and just going straight into, and even skipping most of the attack on the Asgardian ship and just getting to 
what's the what's the meat of this scene? Where's the emotion of this scene? It's going to be in the deaths of Heimdall and the death of Loki and, and obviously Thanos' battle with the Hulk. So all of that made sense. And then what was a nice kind of surprise for me is I, I thought that uh, I, I really thought that the it would be Loki with the Tesseract who would be sending Banner back to Earth. But we got Heimdall summoning the Bifrost and sending Banner, and, and that was what sends Banner back to Earth. Here's what's really interesting about that, though, is that actually solves a question from the first Avengers movie. Because that was a throwaway line of how Thor got back to Earth in Avengers. Remember when Thor comes yep. back to Earth and Loki just says, oh, you know, Father must have conjured some dark magic to send yep. you here. And we all just kind of rolled our eyes at that and being like, okay, they had to say something because we all know that the Rainbow Bridge is broken at the end of the first Thor movie. But now they actually show like Heimdall doing that <laughs> and like mm-hmm. as the last thing he does before he dies. And so I, I love that that became a callback to Avengers. I love that Loki had a callback to the Avengers by saying, we have a Hulk. Uh, there's so many cool MCU callbacks in here. Like it's just uh, you know amazing of how they you know peppered this thing with so many. Oh things. yes, like MCU thing, MCU uh, you know even just the smallest details that they put in this. Um, but yeah, I, I, so going into New York, Banner lands. It's a funny little scene between uh, Wong and uh, and Doctor Strange, like a metaphysical ham on rye. <laughs> like all that stuff was fun, but it, and it just sets up uh, you know the the introduction of. Tony Stark and Doctor Strange. Um, I when we'll talk about this more heavily though, in terms of Tony's premonition of Pepper being pregnant. Uh, there's plenty of Avengers Four speculation uh, to get into there. We'll see. Hold on. I mean, but that's that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> so, true. <laughs> uh, but just getting because uh, we I can't literally talk about every beat of this movie. So just skipping to the main point of here's is. You know, Tony's meeting Doctor Strange, but also, which I, I love their dynamic right off the bat, because two of the biggest egos in the MCU, and they're not getting along, because how the hell could they? You know, these guys are way too self-important mm-hmm. to immediately like each other. Um, and, like, Doctor Strange, like, slapping Tony with, the, <laughs> like, off the off the cauldron of the cosmos, Tony allowing that. Like, all of that is just, you know, it's just such fun stuff. Doctor Strange calling him a douchebag. But <laughs> I think where it really got to, to the meat of it, though, is, like, Tony having to fill in banner of, like, Oh, by the way, yeah, uh, the Avengers, we broke up. Um, so that's where you kind of feel you know, the emotion of it for Tony is here we are with the event, the Avengers facing the greatest threat that they've ever known. And as far as they know at that moment, because even Banner says Thor's gone, they think, you know, they think Thor's dead at that moment. And mm. so like their most powerful Avenger is not, uh, is not available to help in this battle with Thanos and, and by, and, even with all this going on, you know, Tony doesn't even feel like he can call Steve. Like that just that really, you know, sets up where things are emotionally for the Avengers going into it. So it's you know, it, it's kind of a forgotten scene and an underrated scene. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it so far, but mainly because people don't want to talk about any spoilers with Infinity War. But it, Absolutely. It, it really yeah. uh that one really stuck out to me. The opening with Doctor Strange and, and Iron Man or or whatever, their opening I should say, I do love the the title card when it comes in when Hulk falls down mm-hmm. so Thanos is coming and Doctor yeah. Strange who <laughs> and I, <it's> perfect. <laughs> exactly this is perfect I mean I wasn't expecting it I thought I didn't even think the title card was going to come up and that also that shows up and I'm like huh okay uh, as far as Doctor Strange you know I was heavily heavily not into that last Doctor Strange film and I was very I wouldn't say I was skeptical but I was cautious 
with with what they're going to do with Doctor Strange in this movie. And I'm I have to say with the beginning of with this interaction with Tony Stark and that's a great point Sean. The fact that you have the biggest egos going off of each other was a great reintroduction to Doctor Strange because I feel like to me Doctor Doctor Strange is a standout in this film like 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's probably my in my top two or three favorite characters from this movie. And I, I just feel like the Cumberbatch, I'm not sure if it's just because the origin is done. I can, I, and we can just get the doctor strange. I loved his overall performance and, I, and it really did set a great tone at the beginning of this movie. And I love the fact that just, I love when the Ma comes in and he, and he takes all the, or before the Ma comes in, he takes the dust and he, and he floats it all up back at the, the flying donut, um, I'm gonna call that ship. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love he winks at Tony Stark. Yeah. I love that. I love it. And it was to me, this is a Doctor Strange that I needed in the movie. And I know origin stories, blah 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 blah. But no, no, no. This was if this is what Doctor Strange sequel is gonna give me, give it to me. I will take Doctor Strange sequels that are like this. Mm-hmm. Give it, give that Doctor Strange to me. And I loved. And again, to me, Tony Stark's being Tony Stark, but I really feel the writing of Doctor Strange was much stronger in this. Oh yeah, well, just by far, this is my favorite Doctor Strange that we've seen in the MCU up until this point. And I and I say that as somebody who liked the first Doctor Strange movie, but you know this. This intro to Doctor Strange was great, and just seeing him be somebody who wouldn't back down or just, you know, would go toe-to-toe with Tony Stark, you know, especially verbally, which very few characters actually get to do in the MCU, um, I think that was a great way of sending the message to people who are more, maybe more mainstream audience members who might have even skipped Doctor Strange, you know, because obviously we can tell by the box office that not everybody sees everything, and so um, I think it was a great way of setting things up with Doctor Strange and showing his power level, like... Tony's ready to have you know Friday communicate with first responders, and that's still happening. But Doctor Strange doesn't just clear the dust; like he also kind of creates like a force field that kind of stops you know all the damage that the oh you know, yeah, that the yeah. Ship is causing. Because you can see like everything stops, like the wind that it's projecting and everything. Oh, you're right. Almost yeah, yeah. creates you know it doesn't quite look like the mirror dimension from the Doctor Strange film, but it's still it's you know similar in effect in that it, it prevents a lot of the damage. Um, but uh, yeah, like and then showing Ebony Maw. This is where I'm going to throw out my first nitpick. Uh, you know, you you all know that we're big fans of the Black Order around here, and and I don't I'm fine with them renaming them the Children of Thanos. I don't care, um, but I'm just look, the voice, the performance, and everything with Ebony Maw was was perfect. But as somebody who really loved Ebony Maw's powers in the comics, his just mm. super intense power of persuasion. It sucks that that never came into play. And it, Mm. you know, just as a comic book fan, that's not a criticism of the film in terms of narrative structure and everything. That's just me being an ass (laughs) because because I like to do you, man. Because I like something in the comics and I I wanted to see it play out on screen. And so we didn't get that. Ebony Maw was, it's basically telekinesis is his power. And, and, that's fine, except we already have people who have telekinesis in the MCU. Scarlet Witch has it. Uh, Doctor Strange doesn't have telekinesis, but with his magic, he can basically have the same effect as, as telekinesis. You know, we've had that in the MCU. So, you know, that's not a unique power. Now, 
what we now what they definitely showed with Ebony Maw and why I can ultimately forgive it is that he is still his telekinesis is extremely powerful mm-hmm. um, and more so than than maybe we've seen in the MCU until like later in that film with uh, with Scarlet Witch and the Battle of Wakanda. So it's not it's not all bad. I still loved it and and for the most part, like I said, the powers is kind of a nitpick because the other the overall performance is uh, is so good. Um, and just everything about that scene, you know, Tony start calling him Squidward uh, when Banner can't Hulk out, and you know, Tony saying you're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. Like I'm cracking up, and that's that's where I go back to balance with Marvel movies. And this one is like the greatest balancing act that they've ever done. Is this is so intense? Like we've just watched, you know, a mainstay of of the MCU, like Loki being killed, and we're in this very intense action scene, and yet we're still able to laugh, and it doesn't feel out of place. Like, it still feels super organic, and it doesn't feel like it's stepping on the drama or the emotion of anything else that's happening. And and then, uh, so just in seeing that action, you know, Iron Man and Doctor Strange teaming up, and, and Wong too, and now, uh, you know, even though Banner can't really be part of it. But it's hilarious when he tries to Hulk out and, like, falls back into that, like, knocked-over tree. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. there's just some really funny stuff. And I think it's an interesting thing to do with Banner right now is... What's what's the most interesting thing you can do with him after Hulk refused to let Banner back in for two years? As we when we caught up with him in Ragnarok, is now have Hulk who won't actually show up again, like who will make sure it's just Banner. Um, so that's an interesting you know thing to just kind of flip that whole dynamic in this film. So that was interesting. But then you know Spider Man comes into it, and we get some really great Spider Man action in this stuff, and also like. Once the once Spy, or like Doctor Strange kind of takes off and Ebony Maw is in pursuit, like just floating above the air, like down the street of like Washington Square Park and everything in New York, like that just looked amazing. So that's where I was able to forgive the telekinesis being put in in place of his uh, powers of persuasion because like that actually that shot actually looked pretty cool. But yeah, overall, just that whole opening battle of New York, I thought that was great, and I also think strategically, like it was well placed in the film. Because that was a little bit more familiar of a Marvel-style action scene. So after showing such, uh, you know, such un- you know, such crazy intensity in the opening scene in a way that they've never really done, in or haven't done very often, at least in, in Marvel movies, and certainly not to the extent that I think they did in that opening scene, I think that was the right move for the audience to be like, "Hey, we're still Marvel here. Like, we're still. I mean, we're not gonna com- we're not gonna completely deviate from what we've established." in this opening scene, but we're also not completely deviating from, from who we are either. So I, I liked that scene and I thought it was well-placed. I'm going to go ahead and, and disagree with you about the Maw. I actually, I actually really liked him better. He's less confusing for me. I have read infinity in a long time. It's I do kn- yeah. The powers of persuasion. I'll, I'll admit, I don't know how you do that in a movie cause it's kind of funky, but <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And I understand he yeah. is. It's cool in the comic books, but yeah. I actually really preferred this it's straightforward. And he, like you said too, Sean, very powerful. And I love the fact that he was so powerful with his telekinesis that he was, he had to distract him just to, to get a lick on him. So mm-hmm. I love that. I, I really liked him. I prefer this to the comic book if I had to pick and choose. So, I will say I do love the Ebony, Ebony Maw's powers in this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So, but well, yes, and, opening and, is good. And look, as far as uh, Black Order members go, Ebony Maw did okay in this compared to Corvus Glaive. So more on that later when <laughs> I continue on the nitpicks. Um, I'm going to kind of skip the order of the film just a little bit. Uh, but, oh, you know, the I guess the other big thing to, you know, obviously worth mentioning there is uh, – 
you know, Spider-Man getting his new suit, which I thought that was that was the perfect way of how how does Peter Parker get his new suit? Well, it's because Tony just sends it up to to literally save Peter Parker's life because he's running out of air and he's going to fall to his death. So that was perfectly. It was weird. Sorry. It was really weird seeing Peter like floating in space and with the on the spaceship. That was Mm kind of surreal for me, to be honest. Well, it's it's supposed to be like that's not that's it's not supposed to look natural. I know, but I'm just saying that for for me as a, as a Spider-Man, you know, a huge Spider-Man fan, just seeing that, it just again, it just puts it in perspective of Infinity War. Mm-hmm. It's like seeing Spider-Man in space trying to get into a spaceship. It just was weird. It was surreal. I just it didn't seem right. To, not in a bad way. It just didn't seem real or like you know, like I was actually watching that. It was weird. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely, it was definitely a different thing. Certainly something we've never seen from Spider-Man in movies before. Um, yeah. Because it, it, it's rare even in crossover events when Spider-Man goes into that zone. But, you know, occasionally it happens, and now we finally get to see it in the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to skip a little bit, because I just want to continue on with this ship and, and the the abduction of Doctor Strange. To try, so it was Ebony Maw is trying to get the Time Stone, and... Um, you know, I know they they cut in from other stuff first before they go to this, but just to follow along the same kind of chain of events with this group, um, I really loved the scene, like you know, kind of the the torture scene with of Ebony Maw and Doctor Strange on the ship. I love the conversation so much between Tony and Peter because it really plays into what's going to happen later in the film, and it kind of answers that question of uh, you know of that people have kind of had ever since Civil War of. Isn't it kind of weird that Tony Stark is like inviting this 15, 16 year old kid to be in these super dangerous situations? Now, with Civil War, like I think Tony thought like, okay, nobody's going to kill each other in this fight at the airport. And he was he was right, although he was almost wrong with Rhodey. Um, But like, I think that was kind of how he justified it in for to himself anyway, in Civil War. And then even in Spider-Man Homecoming, like I'm going to keep trying to get this kid to just, you know, help out in the neighborhood and not get involved in the big stuff. Uh, But then. With this one, like he, you know, Tony says, uh, you know, he tells, he says, Friday, send him home. And then the parachute comes out like he doesn't know that Spider-Man's still on the ship. And when he sees him, Tony freaks out. And Tony really freaks out when Peter says, well, this suit's so intuitive that it's kind of your fault. And then Tony's like, what'd you say? Because uh, Tony, you can see right there that Tony definitely feels responsible for, for Peter Parker. And he's been trying to keep the kid in the minor leagues. But now he's totally in the majors with this, you know, as Tony calls it, this one-way ticket out into uh, deep space. So it was a really good character moment uh, between those two. And then, uh, then we go back to uh, kind of that bit of, you know, Peter Parker talking about old movies with how, to, how do you get rid of Ebony Maw? Well, have you ever seen that really old movie, Aliens? Which was perfect, by the way. (laughs) That was perfect. I I loved all of that. So just getting those guys, the way they handled getting those guys off into space and and even the conversation between Tony and Doctor Strange and how they decided to carry forward and go to Titan as opposed to turning around and going back to New York. You know, and, and, and even Doctor Strange's line of, you know, I won't hesitate to let you die if it means keeping the time stone safe, you or the kid. Um, so all of that, I thought was just that was just so well done of getting those guys uh, off and into space. Yeah, the the space stuff was it was again it was strange to me to, to see Spider Man in this like space suit with Doctor Strange and Iron Man. Again, it was a little surreal. Still, it, was, it, it takes some getting used to because Spider Man's only been in basically two movies, right? So seeing that, and, and I did. 
I'm going to do a little bit of a nitpick. The aliens thing was fine for me, but it, it, it felt like a little too, a little too much, which I, I'm glad that Tony kind of brings that up. Like that's enough pop culture references. Yes. I, I do. So it was justified. I, I feel it's, it's all right because of that line later on. Yeah. Because so they, I, they put it, it's like, we, we know we repeated the joke. We're putting it to bed now. <laughs> okay. So this kind of goes back into the, my nitpicks a little bit too with this, with this kind of whole sequence and scenes. Like when Tony gets on the spaceship, he like makes a hole and just gets out. No problem doesn't seal the door or anything. I'm like, wait, did, what, what happened to the door? He just, like, or the thing he just, you know, made a hole in the ship, you know, they don't address that. Like no vacuum of space and the vacuum of space is like, you know, I don't know. It, it just, it was a little too much for me. The vacuum of space stuff was a little bit, it's superhero stuff. I can deal with it. But if I was nitpicking the whole vacuum of space sequences on this was a little bit, eh, um, but yeah, I wasn't really, I don't know. Do you feel the same way? No, I, I didn't. I just assumed okay. that Tony filled the other hole and we just didn't get to see it. Cause that one wasn't as, uh, you know, I, I don't need to see, uh, Tony Stark patching two holes on the ship. Just show him patching the one that has more to do with the action, with an actual action beat. So I, I was fine with that. Fair, um, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. But then, uh, you know, the other thing that happens here is, you know, we meet the, uh, the guardians come into it and man, the guardians are so good in this movie across the board they are so good in the movie other than like Groot who's like very intentionally like out of it and not giving a shit about the story <laughs> um until you know later on but that's why when he cares later on it makes it that much more impactful oh, yeah. because he's been yeah. so apathetic the whole time and so you know the reintroduction of the guardians uh you know s- showing Gamora singing to the music i thought was really important because it it just continues to show how much she's changed you know, from somebody who was just kind of hearing music and figuring out dancing for the first time in the very first film to now just being somebody who's so casually sitting in the chair and, and singing along with the music just like Peter Quill does. Um, Drax, of course, being asleep, not you know, not giving a damn about the music because he is, you know, not one of those who dance, and that's why he loved his wife so much. So um, all of that was working, uh, you know, just fine. But then that introduction with Thor, man, that was so good. Drax mm-hmm. just like having full on bromance right away, like you know, this is not a dude. You're a dude. This is a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a pirate had a baby with an angel. <laughs> like, I, I can't tell you how big that my first reaction was was full of a or my first screening was yeah. full of super hyped up, like you know, it was a lot of energy in the room, more mm-hmm. so than, than the one I got today. That like people lost their minds mm-hmm. when he said that. I mean, yeah. both both screens, but the first one, it was like the, a whole it erupted. It wasn't and, until today that like my fourth screen today that I could actually hear all of the dialogue in that scene because yeah, so many people same, were laughing yeah. over it in uh, you know the first few times I watched the movie. Like today, mm-hmm. today's crowd was a little more mellow, although they were still laughing. Pretty, they were they were still laughing hard at it. But I think I had a theater that was with a lot of people who were seeing it for the second time. So like you know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people were trying to listen more intently for dialogue they missed. But I mean, there were still something. There are still some things I have to go back and watch the movie again because I still can't hear every. Everything that happens in it because you know yeah. how loud everybody reacts to it but anyway um yeah that whole bit was just outstanding and, and showing gamora's you know her connection to the story and, and explaining things to thanos for everybody else and and uh you know and then just one of the one of the funniest moments in the entire film maybe the funniest moment in the entire film in terms of like something that actually goes on for a bit 
is oh, Star Lord just mimicking Thor's voice. Which I didn't is, like that. Oh my I'm god, sorry. I was dying. I was dying. I was laughing so hard. It was, it was too. It, it, it felt to me that felt like it was running on too long at that point. I get it that he they really wanted to hammer the the fat. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really mean it. Uh, I don't know. All yeah. all four screenings I've been in, it's gotten it's gotten the biggest laughs of anything. No, no, totally. It's gotten it's gotten laughs, but for me personally, I I felt it was just running a little bit thin at that point. Yeah, and maybe it's just because like I'm a Pratt fan from the Parks and Rec days, and like that's yeah. just totally an Andy Dwyer move from the guy who would pretend he was FBI agent Burt Macklin to yeah. you know having Star Lord be the guy of all of a sudden he wants to try and hang with Thor, so he starts talking like him. Like that was I just thought that was a good bit. Um, but also just Thor, like having so much fun with it, like Thor liking Rocket. <laughs> just, I love that. Like, that but was calling so him great. Rabbit. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was great. Uh, like, take it, you're the captain of this vessel. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you join me? Wonderful. Uh, yeah, like you know, and then you know, I bid you farewell and, and good luck, morons. But yeah, that was all just oh man, just so much, so much good stuff there. It shows uh, that a different writer can still write the Guardians very well and know, can hit on all their their beats because I, James Gunn. It, let's be real is is he's the reason they are well, there. He, may, he was an executive producer who worked on a lot of the Guardian stuff, so some of that stuff may have still been like even though he wouldn't be, he would never be credited as a writer just for working on a few characters. But we don't know that. All the you know, I that would be a really good question to ask Marcus and McFeely is like, are all those lines theirs, or were any of those James Gunn's lines? It, I'll be in in my opinion, I don't think they were all James. If if there were some, I wouldn't be surprised. But it definitely. But I will say this: I do think that there there wasn't a a James Gunn as as much of a James Gunn feel for a lot of that stuff too. If I that think I, I would agree with that. Like it, it felt like a less. I don't know. I won't say predictable, but a little bit more safer. If that makes, and that's I'm probably not doing a very good job. I think it actually so. felt more like Guardians One than Guardians Two. Yes, thank you. Espe- that's, that's yes, especially with Drax because yes, you know, you all know you you heard the show. I love Guardians Two. I'll die on that hill defending that film, no problem. <laughs> but. But one of my nitpicks of the film is Drax, especially in the first act where Drax is just doing nothing but laughing um, or whining mm. about his nipples. Like, uh, yes, which, which I mean, it was do. fine. I thought that was a funny line and, and I laughed at it. But like Drax is just constantly going ha, ha, ha. like there's just not really a whole lot going on until he has that conversation with Mantis. Then I start liking Drax again in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. This was more classic Drax, like that scene where he thinks he's invisible is just, that might actually be funnier than, you know, Peter Quill mocking uh, Thor's voice. Like that was way funnier. That was, that was just classic Drax from guardians one. Like I just, Oh man, I loved it. That was so, so good. But um, you know, I know I've, I've skipped forward here, but since we're still on the ship, I'm I'm getting all the guardian stuff knocked out. Um, that. You know, getting that Gamora backstory with Thanos. Oh. Okay, that actress. I I made sure to, I made a note of making sure to, like to check her name in the credits. Like as it scrolled by, her name is Ariana Greenblatt. That kid's amazing. That mm-hmm. kid is a. I mean, we all know we've been around this long enough to know that like with kid actors, like it's suspect. You never know what you're gonna get. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, this little girl was an absolute gem 
in this movie, and uh, no pun intended with Infinity Gems, as they're called in the comics, not stones. Um, <laughs> We're full of puns tonight, Sean. Was, uh, no, she, I, I thought she gave, uh, you know, she's a terrific little actress. Like, I, I yeah. just, you know, she did a great job as uh, as the very young Gamora. But I also just, I found Thanos, like, it's it's horrible, right? He's committing genocide right there in front of everybody and killing half of the population of Gamora's planet. And yet he seems, like, warm and fatherly at the same time. Like in the way mm-hmm. he just, you know, it, you know, it just in the way he approaches Gamora, like, oh, you're quite the fighter, little one. Like, let me help you. And then, you know, shows her the knife and like the idea of perfectly balanced and all of that. Like, and when, you know, when the Chitari start, you know, firing on her people, like he turns her head back and just says, concentrate on balancing the blade. Uh, yeah, it was such a good scene to kind of show how Gamora kind of bonded with Thanos. Uh, Mm-hmm. Amidst like the the weirdest, most brutal, savage circumstances, like how Thanos mm-hmm. was able to kind of be a charming father figure and very you know protective and nurturing in that moment in just such a weird yeah. way. But also, let's get some MCU callbacks in here. The Chitari being in there, flying yeah. on the little things <laughs> that they were flying on in the first Avengers film. The the huge Leviathan thing coming like flying through. Like oh man, we're back in the Battle of New York, but here it's on Gamora's home planet. Just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful Easter stuff. Eggs. Easter eggs galore in this movie. Oh, so I, good. I, I, so I want, good. I, I've got I, I to go back to what we talked about a little bit before in the beginning of this movie about the CGI and the performance of Josh Brolin. So specifically good. in Yes, with the little girl. I mean, the little girl was great. And I, I it was funny. The first time I saw it, I just, you know, I'm absorbing everything. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't take everything in. And the second time I, I saw it, I'm like, okay, that little girl – definitely has some acting chops because she's great in that scene. She's great at the very end yeah. of the movie too, with that little weird uh, mind scene, if you will. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, but what I, w- I really want to talk about, and, I, and we're going to, I'm going to be all over the place with this, but the, the CGI performance of Josh Brolin, uh, you know, the scenes like this, the very, you know, th- throughout the whole movie, but but it's, it's it's not just the fighting stuff. It's the small stuff like mm-hmm. this that really are, really got to me, and I really felt the emotion of Thanos, and that goes right to the animators and to Josh Brolin equally. And I really both are doing phenomenal jobs. And I've always liked Josh Brolin. I love No Country for Old Men. He's fantastic in that movie. Doesn't say a lot in that movie. He uses his face specifically to get the emotion and to come, you know, to make his character come alive, right? You don't, you know, some characters need dialogue. Some people just need like stern faces. And Brolin's got a very expressive face, and I love, I love him in No Country for Old Men because he is a man. Llewellyn's a man of few words, and mm-hmm. in, in Infinity War, he's talking a lot, sure, and he does a great job, but. His facial expressions, I feel, are really just resonate so well in this movie that I feel that it's him and the animators just doing an amazing job of capturing this the acting in this film for him. And I just in a scene like this, really, you know, as we see the movie, it's whatever. It's like it's great, but the, it's the small scenes. And later on with Gamora. Where she's on Titan, the, the ship, um, Titan. I'm not sure what it's called. Um, you know, the ship's better than I do. Yeah, Sanctuary um, Two is Thanos. Sanctuary ship. Two, yeah. Well, they're on Sanctuary Two, and she's, you know, and she's talking with him, and he's talking to her. Like, this, his expressions of his face and the acting is so incredible. It's like in the scene here too with 
with a little girl. Like it's it's such great acting. And I mean, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Like, Sean, am I crazy to think that could he be nominated for like best supporting actor? Oh man, here we go. Let's get into it. Before you start, I, I, no, 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 I, no, 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 no. Like, I think he's. I think Josh Brolin is amazing in this. I think it is on par with Heath Ledger's Joker. It's the only comic book villain performance that belongs in the same breath as Heath Ledger's Joker. It's it's that good in this film, especially when you consider how much he's getting out of it when his performance it is his performance. It's performance capture. It's you know, yes. they, they capture his face, his expressions and everything, but you're still layering digital effects over it, obviously, to make him look like this giant purple dude. And so the fact that he's able to have so much of himself and his performance shine through those digital effects, that shows just the level of acting that is on display here. And so definitely Infinity War is an, is an obvious candidate and, and most likely inevitable nominee for the visual effects Oscar. And maybe it'll yes. finally be the time Marvel wins a visual effects Oscar. Marvel Studios has not won a single Oscar. They've been nominated several times in the visual effects category. They've never won. Maybe Thanos helps them get that for Infinity War. We'll see how the rest of the year plays out. But in terms of Josh Brolin's performance, he really should be nominated in the lead category because Thanos is yes. the main character of the movie. True. Um, but he won't be. He's the villain. But that actually is to Josh Brolin's benefit. Because the only reason I think Josh Brolin has a chance in hell of being nominated for an Oscar is because the Academy is willing to be much more flexible with the supporting actor and actress categories than they are the lead actor and actress categories. So if they end up classifying him as a lead, then that could be a problem. But if they just allow him to be like supporting as a villain then he has a shot. Now they've never nominated uh you know anybody for a performance capture performance. Like that's that has not happened in the Academy Awards and, and Andy Serkis definitely gave them three really good opportunities in those Apes films. Uh, yeah. But but they never did it. But he was all he always would have been nominated as the lead. Because Brolin could, you know, you could make the argument to nominate him in the supporting actor category that gives him a chance, but because it's performance cap, I mean, he's got two things going against him. Uh, number one, this is a comic book superhero movie. Even yeah. though you know Ledger was nominated in one, you don't get nominated in these categories for very often in, in comic book movies, especially when they're related to superheroes. So that doesn't happen very often, as we already know. So that's a strike against him, and it's performance capture, which has never been nominated for an Oscar. So that's you know that's strike two, but you know it takes. It, just in case you don't know, it takes three strikes in baseball to be out. So he's still he's still at bat. It's not you know it's 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 a tough count to be you know zero and two in the count. But yes, uh, he's he has a chance. It just depends on how the rest of the year goes. I definitely feel like he should be based on mm. this. I mean, granted, I got to see you know I got to see how the rest of the year plays out myself. You know, in terms of what other performances sure. we see this year. But it's hard to imagine very many performance. You know, it's hard to imagine seeing. Uh, five better performances than this one this year. Josh Brolin was uh, was remarkable in the film, and yes, this scene with Gamora was uh, was a perfect example with it. But yet, yeah, all of the stuff with Gamora, and, and yes. we all know about the big one with Gamora that's coming, and we're going to get to that. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, coming out of that flashback, that conversation between Gamora and Peter Quill that precedes the big joke with uh, with Drax, 
man, that was such a good conversation between those two, you know, and, and, and I thought it was great acting by Zoe Saldana and Chris Pratt as well of, you know, him, of her having to explain, like, I can't tell you what I know. Cause then you'd have to die too. But like, you're going to have to, if Thanos gets me, you're going to have to kill me. Cause he can't know what I know. And, and, you know, just, you know, putting, putting that on star Lord, but at the same time, like it's an, it's an important scene because it also shows us the way their relationship has progressed, even since guardians of the galaxy volume two, where, it was this unspoken thing that kind of finally got acknowledged at the very end of that movie. And now we see that, you know, they're, they're obviously kissing like that relationship has progressed. And, you know, so then when we get to, when we get to nowhere, uh, man, that, that scene is just, that is such an intense scene. You know, it's, it's a great fake out by Thanos of using the reality gem to make Gamora think that she has, that she has killed him. And it's uh, it's an it's a terrific performance by Zoe Saldana in that uh, in that sequence because, you know, after she thinks she's killed Thanos, she just completely breaks down in tears, and she's not crying just because of the the you know the trauma of killing this you know this enemy this abuser in her life, but she is crying, and, and Thanos even says it is that sadness I sense in you, daughter, like. He like she is sad because there is a part of her that loves Thanos. There's there's part of her that that just is that little girl who, you know, is just focused on the fact that this guy was protecting her and she bonded with him because, you know, she was a fighter and he, uh, you know, he embraced that and developed that within her and, and obviously took it to a point where, you know, now it was something that she hated about herself. But there was there was love there in that relationship. And so. And that's why it was such, you know, that's why she's, as she's crying, like it's, it's anger crying, it's sadness crying, it's grief crying, it's all of these things because she just has like, there's so many, it's so emotionally complex in terms of how many feelings she has going through her. And that's why she's completely breaking down in the scene. And it's, it's just really powerful stuff. And that's, that's the kind of thing that, that elevates this movie is, yeah, there's cool comic book stuff in there. Thanos using the reality gem to like cut Drax into pieces and turn, you know, uh, I don't know what, like basically turned Mantis into like some sort of slinky looking thing. Like, you know, like it's, there's some weird wacky comic book stuff, but like the emotion is so powerful. And then when, when he finally gets Gamora and then that, that whole sequence of, uh, you know, Gamora wanting Peter to kill her and the, and the fact that they tell each other, they love each other. And then Peter does pull the trigger, but obviously Thanos is not going to let that happen. Um, but man, it's just, that whole scene is just, it, it's just phenomenal. Like I, I just, it, so, so much amazing acting from, from everybody involved and mm -hmm. just another, another brilliantly executed scene as we just keep going through these, these amazing scenes throughout this movie. Well, I, I, everything you said is true. And what I'll, what I'll say about the scene, well, there was a couple things. One, it was crazy when they, when, when Thanos uses the infinity gauntlet to change Gamora or not Gamora change Drax and M Mantis. Mm -hmm. It was straight from the comic books to me. I was like, Whoa, that's a, that's a callback right there. That's an Easter egg right there. Like when the heroes attack Thanos and in infinity gauntlet, he does all kinds of crazy things. He turns people into like, you know, like a stringy thing like that. And like turns someone into cute Nova into like cubes or something like that. And just whatever, like, you know, without even thinking. And I go, Holy crap. And the other thing I took what was really interesting is that when he left, they all went back to normal. And that to me was the first 
and this is, and again, I'm, I'm going to say this, this is going to be very interesting. I'm curious what you think, Sean. It was that right there said to me, okay, just like the Hulk is the same as strong as Thanos in this movie, the gauntlet isn't as powerful as I think it is at this point. Because as soon as he leaves, they're back to normal. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he's got the gauntlet now and it's, he snapped his finger and all that stuff. We'll get to that. But I mean, like at this point, it just seems that the gauntlet's not as powerful as it is in the comic books. And I mean, it's still like ridiculously powerful in the movie, but in the comic books, it's like, it's just, you know, crazy. Whereas the gauntlet itself, when he has it, it just seems like, it's still, it just seems like a fighting chance still. It doesn't seem as, it's on a different scale. And the scale has been toned down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that was my first inkling. I'm not sure if you got that, but that to me was like, whoa, wait a minute. This is not, this is not this all, you know, all full out, all out, like he's unstoppable. He's still stoppable even with the gauntlet, you know, with all these gems. So it was interesting. I don't know if you got that same kind of tone from me it or kind- as me. I had like mixed ideas about it because there was one part of me that was think that was wondering if it's maybe not quite as powerful. Um, although at this point, like he, he still only has half the gems. He doesn't have That's all true. six. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other part of me was thinking like some of this is just like, is just Thanos not trying to kill everybody and not trying to like permanently screw everybody up for all I know, like whatever little, like he, he released Drax and Mantis from the reality thing, from the reality manipulation that he put on them. You know, mm. like, he's just like, I don't care anymore. Like, I got Gamora. I don't I don't care about this anymore. Because he could have used the Power Stone to kill all of them right then and there. He could have used the Power Stone to kill, uh, you know, to he could have used the Power Stone to make sure Thor was dead before he blew up the ship. There's a part of that that's just kind of the arrogance of Thanos and also just that... It, but it also kind of speaks to his mission, though. Like, he's yeah. not literally trying to kill everybody. Like, he will kill when he needs to, when somebody's in his way. But his main thing is, like, he wants to just get all the stones so he can make, in one fell swoop, take out half the life in the universe. But be he wants to be random and fair about that. He do, he doesn't necessarily want to always be choosing who dies, but he, he obviously has to when somebody is in his way. But once Mantis and Drax are no longer in his way, I think it's kind of him just being like, I don't, you know, I don't care. Like, he didn't put a powerful enough hold on it to make it permanent. He could have, I think he could have made it permanent if he wanted to. He just didn't. Because uh, he just didn't care. That's really more of how I interpret it, as opposed to the gauntlet maybe not being, uh, maybe not being quite as powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. Although there's something else about the gauntlet that's not as powerful that we'll get to uh, mm. later, just in terms of its uh, physical integrity. Uh, but we'll 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 get to that. So that pretty much catches us up on a lot of the the guardian stuff for now. I don't want to just immediately go to Gamora and and. Uh, and Thanos on Sanctuary because I know we've we've we skipped past what goes down in uh, in Scotland, mm. and because uh, you know I'm gonna make real quick. Let me just make this point because I, I feel like I've been beating around the bush in, in some of this stuff. But like I, I've seen some of the criticism of saying like this one doesn't have as many character moments and this one doesn't have the character development of other films, and and I disagree with that. And the reason, uh, and I disagree because it's this gets a lot of the character development character moments that other films get. It's just assigned to different characters than we're yes. used to seeing in Avengers mm-hmm. movies. Usually it's Tony and cap and then somebody else gets added to it. So like 
you know, in the first Avengers film, it's pretty much Tony and Cap, and you get like a little bit of Banner, uh, and then it's Tony and Cap again in Avengers: uh, Age of Ultron, and then you get like the the Banner Natasha thing as like your this is your other character, this is your other big character development thing in, in this movie, um, plus a farm. But like you have, but, but like so for Infinity War, it's just different. This one you get a lot of Tony stuff. You don't get a whole lot of Cap. Cap takes a step back in this one for sure. And I'm okay with that because finally Thor got to be showcased properly in an Avengers film. Mm -hmm. Gamora got to have a really important role in this film. Uh, Vision and Wanda get to have very important roles in this film. So the focus, and then obviously Thanos, you know, the villain of the film being kind of the star of it as opposed to, you know, which is something we've not seen in these Marvel movies. So. Uh, you know, I, so for people when they want to say like this, the character development moments aren't happening. It's happening in this movie. It's just different characters than we're used to, and and also Doctor Strange. So it's just different characters are getting kind of the the spotlight in this one than we're used to seeing, and I think that's what needed to happen because everybody knows like Tony and Steve at this point. We don't need as much. We don't need the light to shine on them quite as much at this point in the story. And by the way, we're gonna get plenty more with them in you know Avengers Four. So. Exactly. Not really. I'm not really worried about that. I think that fit. I think everything in here fits just as well. The fact that Thor finally got treated like a really big freaking deal in an Avengers movie, like when he when he's been pretty much skipped over and just gotten the shaft in the other Avengers movies, I was so happy about that. And that's why Ragnarok was such an important movie to have so close to this one. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, to really put you know show like hey. Thor's like he's he's a top level Avenger. He's a top tier Avenger, just like Tony and Steve. But it hasn't felt that way, and now it finally does. So I'm I'm happy with that. And Thor, uh, really quickly, Thor is probably my favorite character coming out of this movie. Like and like you said too, Sean. Like Cap took a back seat, and that was that. And Cap's one of my favorite characters in the comic book. So that was a little hard for me. But it, whatever. I mean, I've gotten three Cap films, two Avengers films. That he's front and center mm-hmm. you know it, it didn't it felt it also felt almost appropriate because I, I think he seems lost without having the captain america persona mm-hmm. too so i feel like that's also kind of a story thing where he's not exactly himself because he's not captain america he's just steve rogers yeah so but with with thor though thor has gone through through this <laughs> through this renaissance if you will in the mcu and it's it's been a really refreshing thing because Ragnarok was so good. And again, talk about performances. I really did, I really liked Hemsworth's performance in this too. Like he's great in Ragnarok. He's great in this. Like he really mm-hmm. he's really delivering great stuff. And you know, like when he like the very end when he says, "Bring me Thanos," it's like that's probably my favorite moment of the movie. Is yeah. that, that is, is that part right there? I think my favorite is my favorite is right before that. It's the it's when he shows up through the Bifrost and you hit that beautiful iconic Avengers theme by Alan Silvestri. Yes, just pulls up like before he even says "Bring me Thanos" and turns into you know the God of Thunder that we saw with the full power set from Ragnarok. Like just you know he shows up in in the Battle of Wakanda, the music swells and that's it. And I I loved that we got that that same iconic theme plays for when Cap also enters the film for mm-hmm. the first time. Uh, you know, in that uh, that battle in in Scotland, and but I like that introduction to Vision and Wanda to show like this is a relationship. It's progressed. They've been together. They've been doing this for two years, and and then you have the you have the attack by Corvus Glaive and Proxima Midnight, and that brings Cap and Black Widow and Falcon into it. And uh, yeah, I just I that whole scene like I I thought that was played so well. And and again, 
you know, it just relied on the movie just kind of relied more on your familiarity with Cap. We all know who Steve Rogers is at this point, and he still gets some good. He still gets some good moments. He just doesn't get. He just doesn't get the best moments in this one. But he all, he pretty much always gets the best moments in the Avengers movies, <laughs> like him and Tony. So it's fine for him to not get him this time around. I'm okay with that. And uh, so anyway. Yeah, I, I like the the bit on uh, Scotland, but it you know just tracking that story a little further into the film, you know I think that was such a great uh, you know emotional hook between Vision and Wanda, and and once they go back to because uh, Cap does get a, Cap does get one really good moment when he stands up to Ross, you know when they go back to yes. the Avengers facility in New York, and he says you know I'm uh, he says I'm you know I'm done asking for forgiveness and I'm way past asking for permission. Um, and then when he says, you know, we're we're here to fight, but if you're going to stand in our way, we'll fight you too. Uh, and, you know, that's our way of setting aside the Sokovia Accords for the purposes of this story. You know, like you said it yourself, Ross, the world's on fire. Like, we're here to fight. That's it. Um, so I like that bit. But then just establishing this thing with Vision and Wanda of want, that the Mind Stone may need to be destroyed. In fact, that's probably what needs to happen. We're going to try our best to avoid that, but that's probably where we're headed. And Wanda, you're the only one who can do it because... You got your powers from the Mind Stone. We need a matching energy signature, and that's what's gonna, uh, you know, take out the take out the stone. So, just putting putting that out there that you know the person you know that because see, I mean, that's the thing is like people who are in in love with each other are the ones who have to destroy each other in this movie. Like Star Lord has to try and kill Gamora. Wanda's gonna have to try and kill Vision by destroying the Mind Stone. Like it just puts people in brutal positions where they have to make impossible choices, and you see those things coming up again and again uh, throughout the film, because that's just how extreme the threat level is uh, with Thanos. So it just reinforces that, uh, it reinforces that entire idea. Um, but then, you know, moving, getting back to Gamora and Thanos, and or actually, uh, and the Guardian storyline a little bit, I, I want to make sure I spend some time talking about Thor and Rocket, but uh, just going back to Gamora and Thanos, yeah, I, I really love that scene between the two of them on his ship, and I think it's really great that she says, I always hated this chair because she's also kind of speaking for the fans <laughs> who've been like critical of Thanos never getting up out of that damn chair. So, and, and the <laughs> fact that Thanos doesn't actually sit in it, like he sits on the steps in front of it to just to make sure that Thanos does not sit at, does not sit down in that chair uh, at all in, uh, in this film. Uh, I thought it was a, a kind of a nice touch. And I don't think that was all completely coincidental or, uh, or unintentional. Well, and for, and for I, the story purposes of that, it shows that how comfortable he is mm-hmm. with Gamora. And I love that. I love the fact that he's just... Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't need the pretense. Exactly. And he's and I love how he says to her, I was hoping you would sit there someday. Mm-hmm. Like, I just... The fact... And again, the fact he sits away from it with her just speaks volumes. And I love, the, like, this, the little stuff that they show in that scene. That, that should not go unnoticed, in my opinion. It's, I love... I actually took very very uh important notice of that today where i rewatched it and i love that i love what that symbolizes a lot yeah yeah no i i I love that and and then just moving that forward into showing uh you know nebula the thanos has her prisoner and it also just continues to that's where this movie works so well is just continuing to pay off you know the the arcs that these you know expanding on the arcs that these characters are on is that you know gamora finally like had it you know, just put to her, you know, in her face, you know, in the last movie in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 of Nebula saying, you always wanted to win. I just wanted a sister and establishing, you know, establishing that, uh, 
sibling bond between the two of them to the point where, you know, Gamora feels a level of responsibility for a lot of the danger that Nebula has been in and a lot of the suffering that Nebula has endured. Um, even though she's not really responsible for it, but she feels that. And, uh, you know, because ultimately it's, it's, it all comes down to Thanos. But, you know, when Thanos is like pulling her apart and, and that just shows you how, you know, how Gamora feels about Nebula at this point. Because remember, Gamora is willing to die to not give Thanos that information, but she's not willing to watch Nebula die in order to not give Thanos the information regarding the location of the Soul Stone. And that's another recurring thing, you know, theme throughout this is, you know, because Steve even says in that other scene at the Avengers thing, we, we don't trade lives vision because that's where these heroes are at is all of these heroes individually are willing to sacrifice themselves to save the day, but they're not willing to sacrifice each other. They're not willing to sacrifice the people that they love, only themselves. And that kind of becomes, that is a huge part of what makes them heroes, but it also is a, a fatal flaw strategically that Thanos exploits. And, you know, he uses that against them. He uses it against Gamora. And so let's, let's go there. Let's go to Vormir, Paul. <laughs> um, Man, I've that is that went from holy shit, I'm <laughs> geeking out because it's Red Skull mm-hmm. to uh, to maybe the most emotionally just heart wrenching, gut wrenching scene ever in the MCU, ever in comic book superhero movies. Just uh, man, let's just do Red Skull first. That's easier. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Oh man, what a perfect way to include Red Skull in this is like we we've all had the theory, you know, he went he got shot off into space with the cosmic cube, he didn't actually die and we find out he's been banished and cursed to stay on Vormir and guide people to the Infinity Stones that he can't, you know, this Infinity Stone that a tre- as he says, a treasure I cannot possess. Um and it wasn't Hugo Weaving, it was Re- Ross Marquand who's on The Walking Dead but also is Really, really, really good at celebrity impressions, and so he does a great Hugo weaving um, in this uh, in this sequence. And uh, man, it was I, I my my one hundred percent accurate response, you know, to you know, with what I said as soon as I saw Red Skull was holy shit. I I couldn't believe it. It was such a such an awesome MCU surprise. As someone who loves the first Avenger and loves the Red Skull character. And, and it, it was funny because when you have the floating cloak guy, I, I almost thought, is that death? Is it, is, is it like an Easter egg of death? And when it was shown to be Red Skull, I said out, I just said out loud where people could hear me, no way. And, yeah. and I my, turned my buddy Jim. I said, Jim, it's Red Skull. <laughs> and I, I geeked out, man. I, I hadn't geeked out like that in a long, long time because I did not think that Red Skull was ever going to pop back up. And you said it best, man, that that guy does an amazing Hugo Weaving impression because I thought for almost the whole movie, I'm like, that that sounds, that that can't be Hugo Weaving. It sounds just like him, though. Did they get Hugo? Did he, like, finally, like, decide to go go back into Marvel? I mean, uh, yeah, but but I got to say, man, it makes me want Red Skull back so bad. Well, it makes me want him to show up so so bad. In at Avengers least that 4. door is open now. The door is open. I, I I feel like that's the one of the things I have not been able to say on Twitter that I just want to like shout from the rooftops and just say, "Red Skull is back!" 
<laughs> I want it so badly. And be like, bring back the Red Skull. Let's get the Twitter. Let's get a, let's get a hashtag looks, going. Come on. And he looks better than he did in First Avengers. Because that looks... was always my knock on the look is they just went a little too waxy with the look. I've always thought, again, I've always oh. called it like the melted red Crayola is what his, or partially is, melted red Crayola. This is probably one of my favorite scenes for and, and obviously for the emotional thing but i really to yeah. me the red skull thing made it be like oh it's one of my favorite parts of the movie for sure yeah it was it was amazing but but certainly not the most uh amazing or maybe probably not even the most memorable bar, uh, part of the scene which is uh man when we, when he it, it's such a unique experience watching that scene for the first time but even you know what i I've seen the movie four times now. All four times I felt the exact same way watching the scene. Uh, except, I guess, obviously, there wasn't as much shock as there was the first time I saw it. But it still kind of surprises me. I know it's coming, and it still surprises me. Uh, just the... when As soon as Red Skull says, like, it, you know, it costs a heavy price, and he they walk to the edge of the cliff, and he says, you know, wh- you know, Gamora says, what is this? And he says, the price. And I'm going, oh, no. And then when he says, you know, a soul for a soul, I'm like, oh, no. I mean, Gamora doesn't even know it yet, but I know it. There's just, I am shocked and yet filled with this sense of, this this dreadful sense of inevitability because I know there's now no way out of this scene other than Gamora's getting thrown off that cliff. There's no way out because of what Red Skull just said. And she doesn't even know it yet. She laughs and, and mocks Thanos of like, you... You asked the universe for something and it told you no because you love nothing and no one. And it's another, you know, just amazing moment in Josh, uh, Josh Brolin's performance that, you know, he sheds the tears. And when she says, you know, you know, tears and Red Skull says they're not for him. And I knew that's what Red Skull was about to say. And, you know, Gamora tries to stop him, but she tries to kill herself. So it's not, you know, it's not that Gamora is afraid to die in the scene. Like, even when she's screaming as she's falling down, like, she's not screaming because she's scared of dying. She's screaming because Thanos is going to win. Thanos is going to get the Soul Stone, and she does not want that to happen. Um, you know, she proved that she wasn't afraid to die. She was willing to kill herself, also wanted to have Peter Quill kill her. Uh, she was willing to die to make sure Thanos didn't get the Soul Stone, but, uh, you know, unfortunately she wasn't, uh, you know, she failed because she ultimately died at his hand, and Oh man, just that scene. But also, but as I said, the, the performance from Brolin of showing that, yeah, Thanos is terrible. He's a madman. He's a mad titan. He's all of those things. He's a genocidal, megalomaniacal, just you know, evil being. But he is. Uh, but yet here, there is one person he loves, and he really did see Gamora as a daughter. And he certainly has a twisted idea of what it means to be a father and what and, and that and a father daughter relationship, but to him it's love and it and it, and it has to be, and, and it is a genuine emotion you know and a genuine love that he has for Gamora. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten the Soul Stone. So him, you know, throwing her off and is like she's looking. The last thing she's seeing is looking back up at him and crying and you know and him you know before he threw her off the cliff, even saying like I denied my destiny once. I you know I can't do that again even for you, just oh man so emotionally impactful and then just to kind of show you like we always say you know no body not dead they show the body and it's Gamora she's bleeding from her mouth there's a huge pool of green blood coming out of the back of her head you know she is dead in in this scene and uh, that doesn't mean they can't undo it later but that's for another show <laughs> um, but like you know for, as far as I see in this scene she's dead and. um 
what's what's important about that besides just how remarkable the performances are is when you just look at Thanos as a character this adds so much uh you know this this adds another dimension to the character it also gives his mission emotional credibility i don't agree with thanos that it's a good idea to kill half of everybody you know half of life in the universe i i certainly don't agree with the conclusion that he's reached and i would say that you know thanos is still a murdering maniac but what you can't call him as a hypocrite because he proves in this scene that he's not going he's not asking anything of anyone else that he is not willing to sacrifice. He loves one person in the entire universe and he just killed her because that's what it takes in order to carry out this mission of what in what he actually believes is saving the universe. So giving you know giving Thanos that emotional credibility and validity and showing his the level of his conviction uh, in this scene, I thought was really important and, and really added a whole nother layer to the film. Yeah, th- that to, to me, that was seemed kind of obvious because, and I almost thought maybe he already knew he had to give a sacrifice. That's why he made her come with him. Cause but I guess he knew where the map was, I guess never mind. But to me, I, I knew that was coming and, I, I'm not. I mean, it's a really sad moment, but to me, I, I just I get thinking, oh, she's coming back because, well, I won't get into that. That's a whole that's speculation. <laughs> but to me, a bit to be honest, I don't think she's permanently dead. And so, to me, it's like, oh, okay, like how is this going to come back and haunt Thanos? That's all I could well, think of. It's so, a soul for a soul. So the only way, just we'll cheat a little bit and speculate on this. The only way she can come back is if somebody else dies. So right. my my thought is that maybe Nebula sacrifices herself to get Gamora back. But they're, they're, yeah. You know, I they're not going to Gamora is a different rule than everybody else that fades away later in the movie. That's a different yes. rule because a different thing happened to her. She died a physical death, but there is a connection with the, you know, obviously a connection with the soul stones. So through the soul stone, they could undo it, but I'm going to say right now, I would prefer they not. And it's not because I don't like Gamora. I I love Gamora. I don't want her to be dead. But that scene is so damn good. And it works so well within the narrative that I don't I don't really want to see it undone, even though I'd love to see the character again. I don't want it to be undone. Yeah, I, I totally, totally get that. But my my theory, which I'll save for our other episode, is a little bit different. And so I I'm very curious how that's going to play out, but I will say it didn't hit me as much emotionally because of of that reason of my theory, which I'll get into next time. But I still think it's a great scene. It's a great moment for both. It's a great acted, you know, performances are, are fantastic, but it didn't hit me as much as you. And again, because probably because I have these, all these theories in my mind when it happens. So, but yeah, I do love the scene. It's a great scene. Yeah, no, it, it destroyed me because I was, I was not even thinking about, you know, the fact that they could undo this later on, but I think if if they undo it, it would cost uh it, it would cost the life of somebody else. I don't know if maybe like the death of Thanos would release her, but I don't because it has to be a sacrifice. It has to be a choice that somebody makes to bring her back. Like I think that's kind of the way it works. But more on that next week. Um we still got a lot of an Infinity War to uh, yes. to get through and uh but speaking of Nebula since I brought her up, uh, she is what ultimately brings the rest of the Guardians together by tipping them off. Uh, you know, she calls Mantis and and gets the Guardians, and that sets up a very brief confrontation between 
Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man versus Star-Lord, Drax, and Mantis. And it was kind of cool to see a little hero versus hero battle of characters that have never interacted before, but I'm glad it was quick in this movie because it didn't have a lot of... They they had so many bigger and more important battles to get to that it was just... It was a brief confrontation that lasted only as long as it needed to for everybody to get to a little bit of a stalemate and actually find out uh, that they were on the same side. But... Uh, the MCU fan in me is also loving seeing other little pieces from Guardians. So Peter Quill's little tractor beam device that he used to get the orb in Guardians, like that gets brought back in this scene. It gets used again in the battle with Thanos. Uh, but so I love seeing that again. Also, the uh, the electronic rope that he uses to get Spider-Man, like that's from the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. We see that in the battle on uh, the battle on Xandar. So, like, there's just so many cool just little things that they brought back from other movies, and they just kept adding little pieces, and obviously big pieces like Red Skull, but just the, the, the level of detail of things they brought back into the MCU on this was all, uh, was all great. And then, yeah, the, that set up another one of the funniest moments in the, in the film, though, is Mantis saying, you know, like, oh, what exactly do you guys do? Like, you know, kick names, take ass, and then just that beat. <laughs> You know, holding the camera on down, he just not knowing what to say, which is actually better than the version in the trailer where he's just like, "Wow, you know, I like the fact that Downey that uh, or that Tony says nothing in that was just uh, that was cool." So I I liked the the little Guardians fight and you know meeting uh, meeting Tony Stark. I, I I dug all that. The Guardians fight was funny because that was the first time Spider Man I think has ever met Star Lord. I don't think he's met Star Lord well in the comics. Yeah. Oh, in the comics. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I like I, before. I'm not sure. Like I, because I, I, being a hardcore Spider-Man fan, and I have, I when Star Lord was brought back into the Marvel universe during Annihilation, my favorite incarnation of uh, Star Lord, and he never, he never got to Earth or anything, anything like that. And I, I that initial uh, Guardians run. I'm pretty sure, you know, I know he didn't talk to Spider-Man then. And even the Bendis run, he just had the Venom stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever interacted with Spider-Man. Maybe he might have, but that to me was the first time I I'd actually, at least for me, had seen Spider-Man and, and Star-Lord meet up. And that was kind of weird, to be honest. But to see Chris Pratt holding Spider-Man's head, that was weird yeah. um, <laughs> for me. But it was it was cool, though. I, I, I agree with you. It was cool to see some of the callbacks of... Things that again, Volume One, the, the my, one of my favorite MCU films, the scene that kind of kind of more play, you know, paying off, if you will, in that scene, and it also was short and sweet. I like that as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, like it, it because they needed to keep things moving, and you can't have the heroes spending so much time fighting each other when they're such a huge, uh, you know, threat. Obviously, they didn't know each other, so as far as everybody knew, like there was a reason to fight. They both thought they were working for Thanos, but as soon as there was a moment to establish that's not who that that's not who any of them were working for, then they were off to uh, you know to planning their confrontation. But uh, we we also got something in this you know sequence that is going to play very heavily into next week's episode, which is uh, Mantis spots Doctor Strange being weird and, and Doctor Strangey. Oh boy! We find out he's looked in the future and he's reviewed fourteen million six hundred and five scenarios of, as he calls it, the coming conflict. You know, as he was looking through alternate futures, and they won one of those. And you know, they they want you to think that he's just talking about the battle they're about to have on Titan. Nah, man, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's much bigger than that. Um, 
So we'll, but we'll get into that. Well, I'm sure it'll come up again more throughout the spoiler review, but it'll, we'll talk a lot about it. Yes. Next week next, when we start, uh, yes. start uh, speculating. But um, I'm trying to think before we get to the battle on Titan, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we skipped. I don't think we've mostly well, covered it. Well, well, if we do, I'm sure we'll cover. It yeah, I'm going to keep point. all of uh, I'm going to keep all of Wakanda together. Oh, you know what? Before I get to Titan, let's get to. Uh, N- it's so hard to say this. Nedevalier. <laughs> Whatever it is, yeah. yes, that's a made up word. All words are made up. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great line. That yeah. was a great line. Um, yes, I love Peter Dinklage being uh, Etri. Like that was, you know, like that, great, that was a cool little bit. Especially that line of like, you know, it'll kill you. Only if I die. Yes. That's what kills you. That's what killing you means. <laughs> that got a that the, that also yeah. was a giant eruption. Yeah. So the, the fact that here we are at Nidavellir, which is in Marvel Comics, and like we're at the heart of the dying star, and they're calling it Stormbreaker, which we already knew because of toys and stuff, but that is the name of Better Ray Bill's hammer for the comics. Yeah. So I just love that. That was a little bummer. That was a little bummer for me, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I know. I, I get it. But um you know that before they even got there though like and this is where when people say there's not character moments what would you call that conversation between thor and rocket and that conversation is so important because it's it's obvious in terms of how it's important for thor because he's just you know laying out a lot of his feelings and, and you go through you're learning as an audience member if you haven't been keeping up with thor like you're finding out how much he's lost over the course of the marvel cinematic yeah. universe and you know and of course lost half his people, as he says, you know, earlier in the film, when he first meets the Guardians, in terms of Thanos slaughtering half his people. But in that conversation with Rocket, you learn a lot about Thor and just how much these battles have have cost him over the years and also find out how old he is. But, uh, you know, aside from that, it's it's a really important scene for Rocket because if we go back to Volume 2, remember Rocket in Volume 2, like, his first response to getting, you know, family and friends was to push them away. And then it was through his interaction with Yondu that he kind of learned that, you know, to accept love in his life and, and actually accept acceptance in his life, you know, that he would be accepted and loved by others and not have to reject them in advance before they get the chance to reject him. And so, you know, the rocket who's in the beginning and even middle of guardians of the galaxy volume two would never give two shits about Thor you know, and he, but this is a different rocket. Like he's learned through that experience with Yondu. This is continuing on his arc that when he sees Thor is, you know, when he sees Thor is down, like he says, like time to do the captain thing. And he's not, he doesn't know how to start the conversation, which is why he's like, Oh, dead brother, huh? That can be annoying. But then like, once he has the conversation, like he, he really does listen intently uh, to Thor. Um, and so even though like, you know, there's funny moments, like he, he's never fought me. Yeah, he has. Well, he's never fought me twice. Like, you know, there's, there's funny moments to it, but it's also a really important kind of progression for those two characters. And then just, you know, the kind of the mission of how to relight the, the dying star and, and keep the forge, you know, the forge open. And so they can make uh, the hammer and then Groot's arm, baby Groot's arm, which the toy kind of spoiled that for me. It's like, you know, as soon as I saw pictures of the Stormbreaker toy, I was like, there's a leaf on that handle. Like that's Groot. <laughs> but like I didn't know it. I yeah. thought it was awesome. I thought it was a but great, it, no, great touch. But it still played. It still played. Yes. Uh, you know, wonderfully in the movie. So I really, uh, you know, so I I really liked all of that, all of that stuff of the process of getting uh, of you know Rocket and Thor and and also Groot kind of picking up on that. Like Thor understands Groot because Groot was an elect. You know, Groot's language was an elective on Asgard, and then and the fact that 
like Groot first starts becoming interested in Thor because like he's like wants to watch the gross thing of Thor putting in the fake eye. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that was a good bit. But then like just that that look on Groot's face when uh you know when Thor is dying and Eitri is like panicking because he can't find the the handle, you know, after this uh, Stormbreaker has been forged and it's going to all go it's it's all about to go to waste and be for naught. And you see that look on Groot's face and it's very reminiscent. It's like, you know, the original Groot from the first Guardians, like that level of concern, like all of a sudden like that is awakened within Groot. And so, you know, there's I mean, that's why I just don't see where other people say there's not character moments and not things like that. Like there a lot of them happen quick, but there's plenty of others that that get a chance to kind of linger. And there's a lot of that as a result of uh, Thor, which is why he has such an impressive turn in this film. And Chris Hemsworth does an amazing job. And, and that just carries forward all the way from, uh, from the ship, the opening attack on Asgard through his meeting with the guardians to Nita Valir, and then all the way into, uh, into Wakanda. It's all just amazing. Sorry. I muted myself. The Thor stuff is great. And, I think with Peter Dinklage, I love the the giant dwarf thing. That was mm-hmm. that was I, I I remember when he was cast. I thought he might have been one of the voices of the Black Order. And I kind of again I stay away from all of the rumors and things like that and try to be surprised. I had no idea it was going to be him. And I went, oh my gosh! And it was hilarious. And his super deep voice was exaggerated and a little and a little over the top, but it worked. I thought it really worked for the scene. Um, Thor's moment, I mean, Groot's moment of, of again, he's ambivalent throughout the whole thing, and, and except for when he steps up for the handle of, of Stormbreaker. It's super, super awesome. And for, also a fun fact, I once called it Windbreaker by accident. By accident. <laughs> A couple years ago, I was like, I was talking to my friend Dave. I said, I said, dude, what's the name of that? What is the name of Beta Ray Bill's hammer again? Windbreaker. <laughs> so, oh, that's man. a true story. I swear I said that. And he was like, you mean Stormbreaker? I went, oh, yeah. That's and then the anyway, <laughs> I had Spinal Tap break like the wind in my head for some reason. <laughs> so um, anyway, but no, I thought that scene was really, really great. And it gave Groot a great moment of, again, you have him ambivalent for so for so long, and then he sees his moment of someone dying, and he and he matures at that in that very instant. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought it was a great moment, and I love the fact that the handle is of Groot now. It's just again a more of a a deep cut, if you will, of just knowing that if Thor uses this hammer throughout the movies, now we know that it's just cool to think that's that the handle comes from Groot. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also thought it was funny when he said I took, I, it was an elective in school mm-hmm. about speaking Groot. So I thought that was pretty awesome too. Um, yeah. Thor, like I said, Thor is just to me in this movie is the standout with Dr. Strange. Those two characters I think are just besides, besides Thanos, of course, were, were the standouts for me. Definitely. Definitely. And so, um, you know, moving but we're gonna get to uh i'm just gonna do all of wakanda kind of at once um and we'll save that towards the end because it obviously sets up the end but so getting back to titan uh the battle on titan i i love that so much it's actually my favorite battle in the film I, even though i love the battle on wakanda don't get me wrong love it love it love it and definitely one of the best mcu you know action sequences ever uh, but the battle on Titan, that's the one that I've been dreaming of, man, because that is a bunch of heroes taking on Thanos. And I give the Russo brothers, Marcus and McFeely, and, and everybody who helped choreograph, you know, Kevin Feige, the producer, everybody who had a hand in putting that, and the actors, of course, everybody who had a hand in, in putting that sequence together 
did such a terrific job because I always thought that was going to be one of the most difficult things to pull off from Infinity Gauntlet was this idea of so many heroes fighting one villain at once. And usually it's kind of this thing of, it's it's like an it even is kind of this way in the comics is you know it's like a, an awkward thing of everybody kind of takes a turn at fighting you know Thanos or fighting the one villain and that just doesn't work like this one they really were working together and everybody had a very specific function within the battle some people were more distractions some people were more of like in the actual part of the physical confrontation and then Mantis kind of saved for last to uh you know to try and put Thanos to sleep or at least just put him under just enough so that they so that they could get the gauntlet and so there's just there's really great action but then they stop down the action in the middle of it to go into you know the the just the really intense emotion of it which is Peter Quill finding out that Thanos has killed Gamora you know even Nebula showing up in the middle of the action scene which another great thing from uh, we saw it actually first with uh, by Thanos's ship, but then she fly, actually flies one one of the Necrocraft that we know from the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie that all the, the uh, Sakarans were using. So having her crash one of those into Thanos, um, that was all cool. But the, you know, getting into the emotion though with with Peter Quill, I'm going to address something because it, it came up in like the Q and A show on on the Patreon, and, and I've seen some other people asking me about it, you know, elsewhere. I think Peter. I think people are giving Peter Quill a really bad rap for you know for how he acted in this scene. You know, some people are just like, "How could Peter Quill screw this up?" They they had the gauntlet off, and like if Thanos hadn't, if Peter Quill hadn't messed with it, then Thanos wouldn't have woken up at the last minute and grabbed the gauntlet right as uh, you know Spider Man had, had pried it free. And you know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. We don't know when Thanos would have woken up, but he probably maybe he wouldn't have. But everybody in this movie screws up because of how much they care about other people. That's why I brought that point up earlier. Everybody screws up. Gamora gives away the location of the soul stone because she can't stand to watch what's happening to Nebula. Her love for Nebula allows Thanos to win and for her to give up information that she didn't want to give up. Uh, Everybody else's love for vision is why they wait too long to destroy the mind stone. Uh, And then with Peter Quill, Yes, his love for Gamora and finding out that she was gone while he was standing right in front of the person who killed her and him not being able to control himself, that is an understandable reaction. So understandable and so predictable, in fact, that Tony knew, and that's why he was yelling at Peter to try and shake him from it. You know, like that, but, you know, he just couldn't stop him. But, you know, Tony, in that respect, has no room to talk because we all saw what happened, how Tony acted when he... Why, when he had just seen a tape of Bucky killing his parents, how did Tony react? Did, was Tony super rational and being like, oh, I should take a moment to think about this. This probably isn't the most opportune time to act because I'm really, really upset right now. No, that's how powerful the emotions are. That's how emotionally charged the characters are in those moments. So I'm not going to hold that against Peter Quill any more than I'm going to hold that against other characters who've made similar mistakes. Again, this is what Thanos is able to use against them. These are people who care about others, and they care about them so much that they have strong emotional reactions. And sometimes those reactions come at the worst possible moment, and that's just what happened here. So I have empathy for Peter Quill. For everybody who thinks they would have remained cool and calm and collected, I don't know. I think maybe some people are lying to themselves and how much they can control their own emotions. Uh, it's easy to just sit there and say you would you would react differently in that scenario, but I don't think anybody really knows if they would or not unless you've actually been through something like that, which, you know, obviously nobody's been through like, you know, a titan from space killing their girlfriend, but like it's, you know, of 
you know, the human real life equivalent of stuff like that. If unless you're you've had the horrible misfortune of going through something like that, you don't know how you would react. And so I think a lot of the stuff with Peter Quill is kind of overblown. But I don't I don't know how you saw it. I kind of agree with a lot of other people. I thought the, the, the Peter Quill thing was a little little weird. I mean, I also agree with you to an extent. I kind of see both sides. I think it was a little unnecessary. I think I thought they were setting it, setting it up with Mantis saying, ah, oh, he's so strong. And I'm like, he's going to break out of this. And the fact that it was Peter being like, oh, yeah, we got, you got my girlfriend. I'm going to give it to you, man. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God. I was like. Again, I'm not the biggest Pratt fan, so that didn't help. So I, I want to make sure I'm going to make sure people know that I'm a little biased towards this. So, but this I will say that I thought that he was a it was a little bit much. I I like the idea that you know he wanted to know where Gamora was, but it just it just felt like it was it just went on a little too long. And I think I think Thanos is going to break out of it regardless. In fact, before he even started hitting him in the face, so. It was whatever. I that wasn't like yeah. my favorite the fact part. that Thanos yeah. could still could, was able to start speaking in full sentences, like I had to, and you know whatever. Like that already showed he wasn't com- he was never completely under. So yes, yeah, we exactly. we don't know how successful it would have been or or wouldn't without Peter's involvement. But I, I understand why Peter did what he did, and and it's just one of those things where yeah, it his his emotion got the better of him. But I understand why his emotion got the better of him. Obviously it's not the right strategic move. And with a cooler head, Peter Quill will agree with you that it wasn't the right strategic move. Well, now he won't cause he's disappeared into nothingness. So he doesn't really have much time to, to really worry about that mistake, at least not right now. Um, but anyway, once we got past that, then it was just another full blown battle on Titan. And I loved, you know, a lot of the one-on-one stuff between Thanos and, and Doctor Strange. Like, that that stuff was just some really great sequences. Like, Doctor Strange, like, having all the arms and then, like, you know, I don't know, a hundred Doctor Stranges, like, going in and, like, trying to, you know, hold Thanos. Like, all of that was amazing. But then we got one of the most epic shots in MCU history, Thanos throwing the frickin' moon. Like, I've been talking about it since they showed it the first time at D23. <laughs> Uh, and then saw it again at Comic-Con because it was the same footage, but they kept it out of the trailers, and I'm so glad they did uh, because everybody, sh- they, you know, that was a moment that they, you know, deserved to be shown for the first time, at least for most people, on the big screen. And although you watch it on a big screen at, at Comic-Con and at D23 anyway, so like that's the way that that moment deserves to be seen. Such an epic shot, and, uh, you know, watching, you know, all those chunks of moon just coming down, and, uh, man, like, it was just set up, it was just incredible watching that. And then Peter, uh, you know, Spider-Man having to go like, I'm sorry, I can't remember anybody's name as he's trying to save the Guardians who mm-hmm. you know, Thanos had knocked out with the Power Stone. Um, but then as it keeps going and you get to, you know, you get to the battle with Thanos where he's running out of his nano parts and like he can't keep replacing his suit. And when uh, it's happened all four times, when Thanos breaks off that blade from Tony's suit and stabs him with it, uh, you know, everybody, there's just this huge audible gasp in, in every theater I've been yeah, in because everybody same. just swears like, Oh damn, this is it, uh, for Tony. And, and it's not because Dr. Strange makes a trade that he says he wouldn't make. Boy, there's so much to say about that next week. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yes. um, but still like, it's still emotion. It still doesn't take away from the emotional intensity. But you know, the other thing I like about it is it's so Thanos in that, he calls him Stark, and then Peter, or I'm sorry, Tony's like, you know me? He's like, yeah, you're not the only one cursed. Uh, I do. You're not the only one cursed with knowledge. And 
And so like that there is, and then he even says like, you have my respect Stark. And that's, that, that's what makes Thanos. One of the many things that makes him such a compelling villain is that he, you know, he, he will respect other people, but he'll still kill them. <laughs> like it's not going to stop, but you know, yeah. like I believe Thanos when he says like, you know, half of humanity will still be alive. You know, when I'm done, half of humanity will still be alive. And I hope they remember you. Uh, I don't think he's being disingenuous. I think he really does. You know, he really does believe that. But it's not like it's again. I don't want to kill you, but you are. But I have something I feel I have to do, and you are in my way. You refuse, you know, and you refuse to give up and let me do what I need to, what I believe I have to do to save the universe. And so it's not so much a a thing of you know Thanos just wants to kill anybody he can whenever he can. You know, so I, I think that those kinds of moments are just really important to adding uh, depth to that character. Yeah, I I love the Titan stuff. I loved the the Doctor Strange stuff with Thanos. It was a little weird to see the connection between Stark and and Thanos, and, and I I thought that was interesting. I hope they play up on that a little bit in the next film because. I was a little taken aback by that in a good way, but I'm like, huh, that's interesting. How does he be there? I mean, Thanos has been on Stark's mind for, for years. Right. But how I want to know how he knows of him, if it's through Loki or, or whatever. So it is, it is interesting. I'm, I'm curious how that's going to work out. So yeah, I do. I do love that scene. Well, yeah. I mean, he knew there were still two stones on earth. So I mean, Thanos just keeps tabs, you know, that's true. I'm not, I don't need necessarily need to know how he knows about Stark. I, I would imagine he, you know, has a pretty good. I, I would imagine Thanos knows who Steve Rogers is. You know, who a lot of the Avengers are. You know, like I think he probably knows. Like, what were the names of those assholes who who beat Loki? Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he at least knows the names of the people who beat Loki in uh, in true. the Battle of yeah. New York. That wouldn't surprise me at all because I, I would imagine that would be a very natural curiosity uh, for Thanos. Is like so. Who stopped us? Why? Why did this not succeed? Who got in our way? Um, here's another interesting thing, though. They they retconned eight years later from Spider-Man: Homecoming because Tony oh. says Tony says yeah, he's been on my mind for six years since he invaded New York. Uh, so yeah, like the math the the math doesn't make sense because the you know like even if you try to say well you don't know what year Infinity War takes place in well. You can't have something that ha- you can't have this, you know. But either way, if Avengers is the, is the starting point, you know, you can't. Infinity War happens after Spider-Man: Homecoming. So if Homecoming was eight years later, then how could Infinity War be six years later? It's not like if they're ba- we're ba- in the MCU, we are back to Avengers having happened, you know, circa 2012 as opposed to 2009, 2010, as Homecoming tried to kind of do its own retcon with uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming. So we're back to the MCU being circa real time which i think is just easier, easier to keep track of yes um so i just don't know why they bothered with the eight years thing later i i still don't believe that that was an oversight in, in spider-man homecoming you look at those things too many times for it to be an oversight i think it was they just somehow got the logic in their head that they were going to change the timeline a bit and then they just decided screw it we're not going to um and change it back so it's fine just forget about those words eight years later in that card in uh in spider-man homecoming also i think one line where michael keaton says eight years but anyway uh, retcons aside, you know, moving uh, over to the Battle of uh, of Wakanda, I also I do love that like Peter Quill kind of has that scene of like, did we lose? But then I know everybody else is probably screaming at him, no, you lost. <laughs> we had it. <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, I know we've skipped a lot of Wakanda stuff, but uh, so I'll I'll go. I won't skip straight to the battle. 
you know, I, I love uh, such an amazing thing, though, like is, you know, when uh, Steve Rogers says, like, I know a place. But even before we like the shot moves to Wakanda, like the music starts playing. Yeah. And I love that it kind of gives the audience that cue. And that just tells you the power of, of Black Panther earlier this year. One of the biggest cheers that I get every time I watch the movie is where is Wakanda. You know, seeing that huge panther as we start overlooking, you know, the main city in Wakanda. And people are just going nuts. And then you see T'Challa for the first time. And I love that Bucky's first line is, where's the fight? Because Mm -hmm. it kind of calls back to like Civil War where he says there's always a fight. You know, like there's this thing of Bucky, like he's just cursed. You know, like he was, he he had peace for a little while in Wakanda, but now it's time to fight. And he says, where's the fight? And it's a great line by T'Challa as well, like on its way. Um, but I, I love the, the introduction when Steve and everybody else arrives in Wakanda, like, uh, Rhodey tricking Banner into bowing. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was a fun, another funny little bit, uh, in the film. I, I enjoyed that, but, but it, it's very quick in Wakanda. They, they move through it. It's like, well, okay, let's, what are we going to do with vision? Sure. He gets a great line where he says, I'm sure you did your best to Banner, <laughs> like, and also kind of mocking Tony Stark that they didn't build vision the right way. Um, so I like that, but then it's, it's really just all about staging this battle and this, you know, it was necessary to do it this way of having like all those people from Wakanda and then all the outriders and, you know, Proxima Midnight, Cull City, and then later on, you know, Corvus Glaive, you know, like, you know, the movie is called Infinity War and this is the part that actually yeah. looks like war. And, uh, it's, it's amazing. Like, even though they're fighting a bunch of CG monsters, like it looks very brutal and visceral and real. Like that's, that's still one of the things that stands out to me most about the Russos and, and how great they are with the action in these movies is they make it feel so real, even when it's like super digital, like you're fighting a bunch of things that aren't there, man, they really keep the, they, they still maintain the, the impact and the action that they put forth in all of this. Yeah. The, the, the battle scene was incredible and it was really cool to see these really intense monsters going up against the superheroes and it was again. I I love the scale. of This was really big, and it was funny because I didn't really. Actually, I'll take it back. I thought it was going to be a lot bigger than what it was. It was still big, but it was just it was just felt it felt a little bit smaller than I was expecting. I guess I was expecting like a huge, huge thing, but no, it was it was really cool. I, I know a lot of people have kind of compared it to like the the Phantom Menace uh, droid scene with with the shields. Uh, a little bit. It's not not quite that 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 obviously, but it's also a much more brutal fight. Well, bro, yeah, it is, it is, and but yeah, no, the, the final scene was incredible. I, I thought it was it was a really amazing fight scene, and I wish we would have got a little bit more of Proxima Midnight and and Cole Obsidian and and uh, uh, Corvus uh, being on the battlefield a little bit more than they, what they were um, to see them kind of in more in action, but I. I loved all that stuff. That stuff was, it was a great, great battle scene. And, you know, you got probably some of Captain America's best moments of the movie on that, in that. Oh, man. The moment where, when, when they decide to open up the, you know, they decide to open up the barrier and yes. everybody starts charging, but Cap and Black Panther end up out in front because they're just yes. faster than everybody. Like, I, I love that shot to death. Same, I, me too. I feel like I'm the only one who reacts to it as, as strongly as people should react to it. Like when I'm in the screen, like when I'm seeing it, I'm like cheering, like, yes, like this is amazing. Like just seeing those two characters, you know, stand out because that's their, you know, it's the super soldier serum for cap. It's the heart shaped herb. 
for T'Challa. Like, I just love seeing those two go out in front and they just launch themselves into each into their own pile of outriders that they just start, you know, tearing apart. Um, and I love that, you know, the battle looks like it's going to turn and that's when Thor shows up and, you know, Banner being like, oh, you guys are so screwed now. Um, you know, and Banner having to use the Hulkbuster armor because Hulk won't, uh, Hulk won't come out right now. And like all of that, I think is just so, uh, you know, it, it was a big, I thought it, it, it was every bit as big as I thought it would be. Like it came, it came across to me as a big epic battle, a war. Um, so I, I totally loved everything as far as the battle goes with Wakanda and even Proxima Midnight, I don't love some of the shots from her, especially when she's like talking to yeah. them across the barrier. Like she doesn't look great, and there's other shots where she looks better. Um, but I love the battle though between when she's about to kill Wanda, mm-hmm. and you know you're gonna he'll die alone just like you, and then uh, you know Black Widow says she's not alone, but then there's Okoye too, and so like watching Okoye. Uh, Black Widow and then Wanda like all teaming up to battle Proxima Midnight and Wanda finally killing her. Like I just I just love that battle. Like I, I it was a great little you know great little battle within the much bigger battle uh, taking place. It was a really cool fight. I, I enjoyed that. But what I also loved about it is you know when uh, when Wanda first comes out and she like destroys those things that were just like shredding up everybody in Wakanda. You know and saves the lives of, of Black Widow and Okoye. And then uh, Okoye says, like, why was she up there this whole time? They immediately answer that question, though, because as soon as she was out in the field, that's when, like, Proxima Midnight sends, uh, or I think it was Proxima Midnight, but, like, yes, they send the message to Corvus Glaive, like, now you can attack Vision, because they knew Wanda was there uh, protecting Vision. And as soon as she was gone, that's when Corvus Glaive was sent in to uh, to attack. And Shuri and the Dora Milaje did their best to try and protect Vision, but, you know, Corvus is formidable, and they weren't able to save him, so it just became... Vision and, and Corvus fighting. So that's going to be my other nitpick is Corvus Glaive. Um, Corvus Glaive is just, he's just purely a physical adversary in this. He doesn't talk much. And uh, within the narrative, he's fine. He serves his function within the story of this film. So it's not really a criticism of the film, just so much as it's, you know, as a fan of that character, it's it's actually an even bigger, it's actually a bigger letdown for me than Ebony Maw. Because Ebony Maw is still... Outside of the power switcheroo, he's still totally Ebony Maw. But this guy looks like Corvus Glaive, but that's pretty much it. He doesn't really act like Corvus Glaive. He doesn't talk as much as Corvus Glaive does. Corvus Glaive is also very much like the leader of the Black Order or the Children of Thanos. You kind of feel more like that was Ebony Maw in in Proxima Midnight in this. And that's okay because I still really like those characters. I, I don't mind his leadership role being taken down, but he's so much weaker than he is in the comic books. Um, like in the comic books, he cannot be killed unless his spear, like his staff, like that has to be destroyed in order to kill Corvus Glaive, which actually happened in the comic. Spoiler alert. Um, but, uh, you know, like, so he's, he's kind of e- like, he's wounded fairly easily in the first battle in Scotland. And then he's pretty easy for vision to kill once vision gets the staff and, you know, kills him when, uh, when Corvus Glaive is battling Captain America. So we still get some good battles like one-on-one Corvus Glaive against vision and then Corvus Glaive against, against cap. So it's not all bad, but I just feel like that character didn't get to be as powerful and, and as formidable as, you know, I know him to be from the source material. Like he's a much more difficult out than you get in, uh, in this film. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, Sean, that Corvus is definitely a, a secondary character when in the comic books he's a little bit more important. 
Um, he seems like he's more of like uh, Thanos's like main henchman, I'd say. Besides Ebony Maw, Ebony Maw, is, I think, was more. Uh, I'd say it's Ebony Maw and Proxima Midnight are the top two ranking really? members in this. Oh, totally. I, I, well, no, no, no. In the in the comic book. Oh no, in the comics, it's it's Cor- Corvus Glaive is the leader of the group. Yes, Ebony and Maw just kind of does his own thing because he's Ebony Maw. But like, yeah, like, exactly. officially Corvus Glaive as the highest ranking in the comics. Yeah, and that's what I thought was kind of strange in this. Like he was more of a secondary character, and I was like, huh, okay. He's, I, I still think he looks great. I thought his CGI, for the most part, looked, looked good. And I, I just, it was a little shame that he was kind of underused in this movie. But I, I got enough of him. I thought he was fine. I thought he was, he was fine for the movie. I was a little disappointed that he wasn't, had a bigger role. Yeah, but, you know, ulti- like I said, ultimately that comes down to a minor nitpick and, I did actually like the way that they killed Cull Obsidian with like uh you know having a Hulk versus Hulkbuster fight, but it's the Hulkbuster armor and with Banner against Cull Obsidian and like Hulk not coming out and then you know, Banner being like, Screw you, you big green asshole, I'll do it myself and then just sends Cull Obsidian up into the force field where he explodes. Um but then uh you know, obviously the, the meat of this uh scene, this sequence takes place when Thanos arrives and I got to give so much credit to Alan Silvestri and his score. I am so happy he came back for this. You know, he's his score in the first Avengers movie. He he did the first cat movie as well, I believe. And, but yeah, the first, his score in the first Avengers movie remains one of my favorite scores. This might end up going down as my favorite score because it, it, it brings back the classic theme from Avengers, but it also adds so many other great, musical moments you know like the the score and the the vormir scene is is perfect and and i love the just the the heavy dreadful sound when thanos arrives in wakanda as all the heroes are trying to uh you know attack him and stop him from getting to vision and all of that just plays so well but like he's so powerful at that point he's got five infinity stones that like he's just quickly dispatching pretty much all these characters except steve rogers who actually resists the gauntlet and you see that look on i mean you saw that look from thanos in the trailer of just like he's kind of confused as to how this guy is able to resist even for a second and then of course knocks him out um but uh yeah when you know but it's also a great speech you know from vision to wanda like it's not fair it shouldn't be you but it has to be you this is it we're out of time and she has to destroy the mind stone and so you know her going through all of that and destroying the mind stone but then it's all for naught because because Thanos has the time stone, he just turns that back and he gets the he gets the mind stone and man, like that's it's just a scary sight with vision. You know, you all know my theories about vision being able to survive inside the mind stone, and that may still come to fruition uh in uh, in the next film, and we'll talk more about that when we do a speculation show. But uh man, when when vision just turns to gray and then just rolls to the side, like I was like, Oh man, I felt that <laughs> like, just cause it looks so creepy. Uh, and it, you know, it looks so scary with vision. Um, but yeah, Thanos getting all of the stones and just being so powerful and just walking right through all of the Avengers that were there. And then, you know, he gets, he's, he's all powered up. He's got all the stones, but then it, you know, you have that brief bit of hope because Thor just chucks the ax and it goes right down and buries it in Thanos's chest. But Man, like I could tell what he was gonna say to Thor when he's like, "You should have," like you know, and he cuts off and then says, "You should have gone for the head." And I'm like, "Oh snap!" (laughs) 
<laughs> there it was. Yeah. Thanos snaps his fingers. And I'm so happy with the way they did this because we talked about this on the show before. I don't remember if it was, you know, on here or on a Patreon credit scene or whatever. We talked about, you know, the popular fan theory of the movie ending on the snap. And I'm okay with it because of the way they did it. I'm glad it didn't just like he didn't just snap his fingers and then we rolled credits. Like I'm I'm really glad that we got to kind of watch it play yeah. out. And and it because it just it plays into so many other things you know thematically in the film and it's also I think a really interesting thing for audiences to see especially people who aren't as familiar with comic books like they're not, you know people don't necessarily know that these characters are going to come back. Um, also, really interesting to see like what it did to the gauntlet, the way like it fries the yeah. gauntlet. The gauntlet still works because he still used the space stone to get out of there, you know, to transport himself to where we see him in the the final scene of the film. Uh, so it still works. Uh, but we'll see. Does it still work as effectively as it did? Is it just you know? But his arm is kind of burnt up too. You yeah. Know, like, like his when you you can especially see it on his left uh, shoulder when he's sitting down in the final shot of the film. Like you can see like that's kind of scarred up a little bit. So, um, you know, I but he has all the Infinity Stones. I mean, frankly, he has all he has to do is you know want to, and he can repair the gauntlet. I mean, he should be able to. That's that's supposed to be. Unless, like, the gauntlet is weaker now and he can't quite, you know, repair it himself, but he can go back to Eitri. I don't know how they're going to figure that out. That's for next week. Um, exactly. But uh, I guess we should, uh, you know, we can go ahead and get into it. But watching all those heroes disappear, man, like, I, I felt it. I, I've heard, you know, some people saying they didn't feel it because they just know it's all going to be, it's all going to be reversed anyway. You know, I, I've seen two criticisms of it. I've seen people criticizing it because they're like, well, it's all going to be undone anyway. And other people criticizing it because like it that just makes it like a, a cliffhanger and it cuts the movie in half. It makes it feel like half a movie, like a part one, you know, a part one to a part two. Well, it is part one. <laughs> and, but no, but like I don't agree with that. Like I I don't because it's this is a this is a complete story in which the heroes lost. There's just going to be a next story. But like if you want to say that it's a, a cliffhanger or whatever or a part one, then I'm like, well, then do we call it Empire Strikes Back Part One? I mean, seriously, they, like that movie ends yeah. with one of our main heroes, Han Solo, trapped in carbonite, being escorted away by a bounty hunter, being sold off to another guy. Luke Skywalker, our, one of our other main heroes, has just had his hand chopped off by Darth Vader, wh- whom we've also just found out is his father. Like, the heroes have lost in Empire Strikes Back, and they are reeling at the end of that movie. And yet we call it one of the greatest films, not just one of the greatest sequels, but one of the greatest films of all time. So... That by itself is not enough to call what happens at the end of Infinity War like a criticism or call the movie incomplete or, you know, to offer that as a criticism. Yeah, I wouldn't call it incomplete. So, like, that's the, you know, like, that's, you know, and, and also The Dark Knight, by the way. Do you think that's the way it was always going to end is that Batman was wanted for five murders and on the run from the police? He's literally being chased by the police when the movie ends. But we just assume that, you know, he's going to get away and then there will be a next story. Like, just because we know there's going to be a next story... It doesn't take that away from me. And also, the reason why that scene has an impact on me, even though, yes, these characters that are fading away, I expect them to come back, it's real to them in that moment. And that's what I'm feeling as I'm watching these characters. Like, uh, you know, as I'm watching these characters who are losing their friends and also the people who are dying, like they're discovering that they're dying and there's nothing they can do about it. I mean, you know, Tom Holland is who is the one who really sells it because he goes from being superhero Spider-Man to just being that scared kid. Like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Mr. Stark, I don't want to go. And then, you know, the last thing he says to Tony is, I'm sorry. And then he fades away. So 
you know, all of those things, like I, that's what makes me feel it is, you know, Tony's feeling it. Steve is feeling it. Uh, you know, and obviously the people who are fading away are feeling it. So they're feeling it. I have empathy for the characters on the screen and that's why it has such a huge impact for me. And it's also much in the way of Empire Strikes Back is uh, part of the impact is even though I know that the heroes can come back and win this eventually, it still begs the question, and we're going to dedicate a, a whole show to it, and m- maybe several shows to it over the next year. How? Mm. You know, like, how? Like, it's not an easy answer for how they're going to be able to do this. Like, this is going to be a very difficult thing to come back from this loss that they have suffered uh, in, uh, you know, this loss that they've suffered in Infinity War. And and I still, and, you know, one of the things that I love so much about the way this ending plays out is just, you know, thematically, like, let's go back to the beginning of the film you know, the, the Russos called this movie, like, they compared it to, like, a 90s heist film. Uh, I think they undersold it, and they probably undersold it intentionally. Yeah, there's some smash, you know, there's some smash and grab going on uh, in this movie. But every Infinity Stone acquisition is actually much more emotional than just a mere smash and grab. And when you think of the sacrifice that Thanos has to make with Gamora, this is more like, you know, an Odyssean epic. You know, like, this is Greek mythology here playing out in Infinity War. But it's also biblical mythology. If you really go back and, you know, if you, when you look at it and you have, uh, if you look at Thanos and you look at what's the last thing Loki says to him, you'll never be a god. Well, what does Thanos become at the end of the movie? He becomes a god. What has he just done? He's just triggered the rapture. What else has he done? If you go back to, you know, the, the seven days of creation, it's really God creating the earth in six days. Well, and then he rests on the seventh. Well, what happens in this movie? He gets six stones. So there's his six days. On the seventh day, he rests, which is exactly what he's doing at the end of the film. That is the last scene. God is resting, which he even said he would do on Titan. Once he gets all the stones and does what he needs to do and kills half the life in the universe, then I'll finally rest. So, and... You know, so I just, all of that is just so, you know, there's just so many like heavy, juicy themes being played into this and that, that the ending, uh, the ending brings all of that together in this very powerful and moving way. And I, it's easier for us to be cynical about it as comic book fans who kind of know how things work. But I can tell you right now, like general audience members aren't feeling that way. Like there are people who are like walking out of theater being like, oh my God, what just happened? And like just in complete shock and disarray, one of my like I cracked up laughing, and maybe I shouldn't, but because she was kind of meaning as a joke. There's this woman walking out of the theater on on Thursday night, and she's like, "Oh my god, I need a drink," <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. And I was like, and everybody was like, "Oh yeah," like people, you know, people are feeling the intensity of this. Like I think this ending, maybe it's not working for everybody, but I think it's working for most of the audience out there right now, based on the reactions that I've seen coming out of theaters, and also just based on. The movie getting an A cinema score, doing so well on its opening weekend. Like people are digging this movie, and 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 that includes this ending because this is we've always wanted to compare films to Empire Strikes Back. This is the first film, you know. This might be the first film I can think of that actually did an ending similar to Empire Strikes Back, and that it ends with a definitive loss for the heroes. It doesn't mean they won't come back and win the next game, but they've lost this game, mm-hmm. uh, and it's really you know it's really important to show that, and so. It just goes to show with me, like, I've always had this theory that people wouldn't, you know, a lot of people would complain about Empire Strikes Back if it came out today. And, you know, the, some of the people who are criticizing Infinity War for some of the reasons they're criticizing Infinity War, it makes me think that that, you know, that theory wasn't totally off. Yeah. And, and wrapping up my thoughts, I, to be honest, that's, 
I was in shock they actually went with this ending, and that was it was all very surprising to me. And I was shocked that Marvel had the guts to end the movie like that, because Mm -hmm. this is a very intense film that, you know, a lot of kids want to go see and the kids are, it's going to go over their heads. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think that it it was a really gutsy thing to do. And their fear, it just shows that Marvel is fearless. Marvel is, is not scared of alienating people or, or in a sense to where for the, the, for the sake of their stories, they want to tell good stories. And this movie showed that, that they didn't care. They're going to tell a story of the heroes losing and that they lost big time. Mm-hmm. I have some theories about, about the ending, you know, next week or whenever we record, uh, for the next episode. But, uh, but yeah, I have a lot of theories that kind of go along with that, but yeah, that's kind of my, my general thought is I left the theater going, I what, what did I just see? I can't believe they did that. Yeah, no, I mean, and that—that that was another thing. Is I was, I was also impressed that they, I was, I was like applauding Marvel, like, "Wow, you're going to go with that kind of ending." I didn't think they would do it, uh, because, or I wasn't sure if they would do it because, you know, like it's because it, it is a risk to end a movie like that, um, you know, and you can tell by the way some people have reacted to it, but you know, most people seem to be on board with it and willing to go along with Marvel on this, and I think it's. It certainly creates a lot of urgency if you definitely want to see Avengers 4 next year. But, I mean, people would have wanted to see it anyway. But I like the way it ended with this, that in these movies where we're so used to seeing the heroes win, and maybe they ult- on sure, they're ultimately going to come back and win. But that, you know, just because things are going to be, some things are going to be undone, that doesn't, that doesn't invalidate what happened in this film because it's real to those characters in those moments, and they don't know that, it's going to be, that they're going to be able to successfully undo it. You know, they, they don't know that. You know, just like, you know, did it, when people watched Empire Strikes Back, I wasn't alive when that movie came out, but I doubt when people walked out of that theater that they really thought Han Solo was going to spend the rest of eternity in Carbonite. Like, I'm sure they knew there was going to be another Star Wars at that point, and people knew that, you know, the heroes would ultimately be okay. It's just, but the big question is how. They're in a really bad way right now. How are they going to get out of this? And that's, you know, that's the ultimate mystery that you, in the question that you want to have answered. Um, uh, a, a couple other quick notes before we wrap up. Loved the uh, I, I love the lack of mid credit scene in this one. It's obviously not the first time Marvel has not had a mid credit scene, but yeah. I love the way they made it look like there was going to be a mid credit scene. You know, just to really double down on the impact of the ending of the film before credits started rolling. Is they did you know the all the above the line credits that you normally do, and then they do the title Avengers Infinity War, and then it just fades away, just like the you know the heroes did. Uh, or some of the heroes did anyway, and then you get to, uh, you know, and then you get to like, and then it just fades to black, and it, you know, the music stops, so it, and it holds for a second, so you think they're gonna, you know, switch into the mid credit scene, but then the credits just keep rolling. Uh, I love that little bit, but then what I loved even more, of course, was the actual post credit scene that I think was really, imp- I think it was important on a, on a couple of levels. Yes, there's the obvious awesomeness that you know there's a captain marvel logo on that you know super space pager that, <laughs> that nick fury had oh my god carol danvers which hey since the movie was set in the 90s a super space pager works right um like i'm fine with that being the mode of communication between nick fury and uh and carol but um what i liked about that sequence though um, in addition to showing people disappearing, like that shows you that this thing, you know, that this is really happening everywhere. It's not just a matter of how do we get back these heroes who disappeared. Really, half of everyone in the, you know, in the universe really is disappearing right now. And um, 
but what I like about it is it kind of shows you how fast Infinity War happened. Because they were just finding out about like the start of the invasion in Wakanda and you know, but then and all as they're just finding out these energy signatures of all these ships that are coming into Wakanda, it's already happened. Like the entire battle of Wakanda has already taken place and you know, Thanos has come in and you know, and gotten the all the gotten the Mind Stone and you know, snapped his fingers and everything. Like Infinity War happens really, really fast. Because even when uh, Thanos arrives on Titan uh, and he finds out Ebony Maw is dead, he says this day extracts a heavy toll. So I don't know if it's literally all within 24 hours, but it happens. Uh, it's not much more than that. It's a very, very quick, uh, very quick story. I mean, it's it's a big story and a lot happens in it. But it's just kind of this really big, you know, jam-packed day because a lot of these things that we're seeing for these heroes, they're all just happening at the same time, just at the you know different various locations where these heroes are. So I like that it kind of uh, I, I I appreciate that it set that up. Like it, I think that post-credit scene kind of really helped be a little extra informative in terms of just uh, you know just how much was happening and how fast in Infinity War. Yeah, totally, man. I I totally agree. The mid credit scene, the lack of mid credit scene was good, and the end credit scene. I have on the next episode. I have a lot more to say about that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but anyway, just to kind of finish up with uh, you know overall impressions on the film, you you can tell by now. I mean, we opened with it. I I love this film. I, I love it to pieces. It, it's just it's. I think it's amazing. I, I think it's a legitimate all timer, and I, you know, I, and I'm seeing that's that's most of what I'm seeing out there. Even people who aren't necessarily saying it's the best ever, you know, most of the reaction I'm seeing out there is very, very, very positive to Infinity War, and and I understand why. I mean, I I've addressed some of the criticisms that I've seen out there, and look, for anybody who is critical of the film or, or you didn't like it, you know, I'm I'm sorry if you didn't like it. You know that that sucks because I'm sure everybody went into this movie wanting to love it, and so the fact that some people come out of this not loving it that sucks. I've been there. You know, I know how that feels to be anticipating a film and then it, for whatever reason it doesn't live up to your expectations. Or for some people who overall liked it but maybe don't like it quite as much as we did and have criticisms. All that's fair game. It's fine. Nobody has to like it as much as I did, but. You know, speaking for myself, I I love this movie, and and I, I think I'm gonna you know I'm always gonna remember this movie. This is one of the you know major cinematic moments, cinematic experiences of my life. I'm never gonna forget this one. Uh, it's Infinity War is so good that you know even though a lot of people walk out of that movie going, I need to see Avengers four right now. I actually don't feel that way. It's not because I don't want to watch Avengers four right away, but it's just because I'm happy. This movie is so good. And it's just so jam-packed with information that I am happy to sit back and digest this film a little while before we get into uh, Avengers 4. So, Which is fine because we'll be speculating very soon, but we're not going to be seeing any footage for probably not for, probably not for several months. And that's okay. I'm, I'm happy to just live with this film because uh, I think Avengers Infinity War... You know, we, we use the word epic a lot when we talk about films, especially comic book movies. We also use the word, we also use Empire Strikes Back as a bar. You know, a lot of the times we use that to try and compare and engage films all the time. And we, we do that so much with words like epic and, you know, comparisons like Empire Strikes Back that we've kind of stripped the meaning of it, uh, of those things. But with Avengers Infinity War, it kind of reminds us of how how high the bar should be for certain words we use to describe films and certain and other films we use to compare to new films that come out in blockbusters because Empire Strikes Back, or I'm sorry, Infinity War reminds us where that bar is. And then as I wrote in my, my review, like it clears it. This is a great, 
epic film that I think is going to, is one of the all time great uh, one of the all time great blockbusters that belongs in the elite class with Dark Knight and Empire Strikes Back and all those other movies and and you know some people will disagree with that or just say I'm I'm a Marvel shill I don't care why you think I'm saying it. Uh, we've hopefully over the course of the non-spoiler reviews I've done and this spoiler review and everything you're going to hear me say about this film in due time, uh, I will at least articulate why I feel this way. And it's not just about, uh, it's not just about shilling with Marvel. Yes, I'm a Marvel fan, but I also watch and critique film and have been doing it for years. And, you know, so I'm, I feel like I'm good enough to look beyond just my fandom and I see legitimate real true greatness in avengers infinity war yeah i i can't wait to keep talking about this movie it's gonna be great i yeah it's this movie is there's a lot to digest and i'm with you sean that i don't need the next movie or next week because this movie it's is really really amazing and there's a lot to digest in it and we just we just hit the tip of the iceberg in my opinion yeah and so there will be much more to say about Avengers Infinity War. And as I said, you know, our next episode, that's when we're going to dive into, you know, just speculation like crazy. We'll start thinking, you know, we'll, we'll obviously talk more about Infinity War, but we will also be, you know, allow, have more time at that point to really start to speculate on what certain things mean and, and how that plays into the future of the MCU. Most immediately, of course, uh, Avengers 4. Although I guess technically most immediately would be Ant-Man and the Wasp, but but then, you know, Captain Marvel and Avengers 4. So we'll get into all of that in our next episode. But as many of you already know, but some of you may not because you're hearing this for the first time, uh, we do Patreon credit scenes. Again, that's for our patrons over at patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News where we do a little extra conversation that maybe is doesn't fit within the main discussion topic of the episode. So obviously we didn't have room for news as it relates to uh, Avengers Infinity War. So what we're going to talk about uh, with this spoiler review, what we're going to talk about in the Patreon credit scene this week is we're going to go into... Um, we're going to be talking about some of the stuff that came out during the junket for Infinity War, which is Eternals and Nova being in development at uh, over at Marvel Studios and could potentially be stuff that we see sooner rather than later in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we're going to be talking about all of that. And, of course, you can always keep up with us besides the Patreon. You can keep up with us on the website, marvelstudiosnews.com, Facebook and Instagram at Marvel Studios News, uh, and on Twitter at Marvel Newscast. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. Sean spelled S-E-A-N. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks as always for listening, and we will see you soon. Enjoy Infinity War, like several more times. Bye. <laughs>